<laughs> That's my baby, Luke. Don't hit me, boss. Don't hit me. I'll do whatever you say. Only don't hit me. <laughs> You're an original. That's what you are. Them mullet heads didn't even know you was fool. Fool them, huh? You can't fool them about something like that. They broke me. You can get my mind right, not with no stick, no sir. Six minutes and 18 seconds after the hour of 11 in this, the month of September, in the year of our Lord, 2008. Thank you for coming along and making a part of your listening day. We are live from the plushly appointed, yet not overly ostentatious studios of AM 970, The Talker. This, my friends, is the Rick Emerson radio program. Thank you for coming by. It is uh, Monday, and welcome to Day 12. And the whole point of that intro is to make Seamus cry. So there you go. Hope you're weeping like a small child. That's horrible. I know. How come you want him to cry? Because I'm just projecting, you know what it is? I'm projecting the fact that I want to cry. All right. It's 503-733-2970. 503-733-2970. Right, a little uh, Cool Hand Luke there. We actually just played Cool Hand Luke, I think, seven, eight, nine days ago. And we played the whole Struther Martin sequence about, Now, Luke, you're going to get used to them chains, but you always going to hear them clinking. Well, he's just a mean little bastard in that film. Just a, just a son of a bitch. So, what a great movie. Does, I'm, does it have a happy ending or no? Terrible no, of course ending. not. <laughs> Nothing has a happy ending. Life doesn't have a happy ending, Sarah. Life is a series of down endings and disappointments. As they said on Mad Men last night, 
You don't know how long you've got, but you know it ends badly. So, there you go. Outstanding episode. Oh, last night was really good. We'll talk about last night's Mad Men in a second. I had two or three people pull me aside this morning. I hadn't even been to, I'd been, been to work like five minutes. People, what about last night's Mad Men? So, uh, all right, so we'll talk about that. What did the guy say in the recap? Uh, that hope is just appointment, uh, hope is just disappointment delayed. It's 503-733-2970. You want to email, you can do that as well. It's rick at rickemerson.com. Rick at rickemerson.com. Tim at 970.am. Sarah at 970.am. Uh, or Richie with a T at 970.am. Here's what's coming up today. Well, first of all, we will talk about the life, work, and legacy of one Mr. Paul Newman, who uh, passed away, well, I guess Saturday morning. Is that when we found out? Yeah. I forget. It was all kind of a blur. But I did that that thing that we do sometimes. And I don't know how it works with you all, but some, when there's different sort of reactions to celebrity deaths, sometimes you sort of open up, you know, because your homepage is, uh, Jesus, you know, now I'm getting the studio cough. <laughs> Give me just one moment, won't you? Maybe it's lupus. Lupus. Wait, no, I don't think that'd be lupus. Oh, that's what true. does lupus do? Lupus gives you some weird gnarled up hands. Is that what lupus does? I don't really know what lupus does. I always think of lupus McCain, but that's <laughs> lupus McCain. You got yourself a lupus Jackson. Uh, what was I saying? Oh, so we have different reactions to celebrity deaths. And so Tim's homepage is the Drudge Report. Sarah's is uh, Gmail. Yes, Google. Yes. Yeah. Uh, mine is Yahoo. And so you know, get up in the morning. What are you going to check your email? See what's going on in the world. Did somebody die? See if. Here's the thing about that statement. Because you're a woman, I'll let that statement pass. And there, there are different demographics. I suppose that's true. Because you're a woman and perhaps... From a, a younger one. A, a, a younger woman. Because I'm a woman. Out living. I'm just saying it is to some degree a guy thing. Yes, Mr. Paul Newman died this weekend. Okay, I, I was kind of hoping that wasn't the case when you yes. said that. No, it was the case. So, I, uh, yeah, but so on oh, Saturday. Oh, so hence the crying. Okay, now it's totally. full he, circle. He's the salad dressing fellow. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Him and, him and Mom Newman. Good dressing. So I opened up Yahoo uh, this weekend, and it said Paul Newman dies at 83. And sometimes when a celebrity dies, you kind of do like a little victorious fist punch, like a, yeah. A guy, you know, like when God kills off somebody, they really just richly had it coming. And then every now and again, you're sort of interested. Sometimes God kills somebody that you already thought was dead. That happens to us probably two or three times a year. And then occasionally, you open up your, your homepage or whatever it is, or you get a text message from somebody, and you kind of just do that, God damn. And so it was with Paul Newman. I mean, he's, you know, 83, long life, successful career, an American icon and so forth, philanthropist, businessman, artist. Uh, you know, had had the cancer and whatnot, which isn't a great deal of fun, but still, nobody likes to bid farewell to uh, to Butch. So, <sighs> all right, Tim, you look like you're about to say something. Okay, so this is going to be one of those days that I plan some things, but not very many because everything's going to be about breaking news today. Totally. So it looks like this bailout vote is about to go down to defeat in the House. Two hundred eight yay, two eighteen nay. So this is the bailout bill. Which will then not be passing. That is correct. So what's going on now is it is near defeat on the floor of the House. More than enough members of the House have cast votes to defeat this, but the vote is being held open, apparently, as efforts are underway to persuade people to change their votes. Not, not likely. Happen. No. Now, just to make matters worse, the Dow has reacted sharply. It has plummeted more than 700 points. All right. And it's only 1115. 
In the morning. It's going to be a great day. One of the best we've ever had. So there's a sack of things here I know we'll never get. <sighs> okay. Well, in any event, uh, so we'll talk about uh, that. We'll talk about Paul Newman, who passed away this weekend. And by the way, I, I, should, I was poking a little bit of fun here at the beginning of the show when I said the whole point of that was to make Seamus cry. Paul Newman was... Beloved by everybody, especially people maybe of a certain generation, especially about film bus. Women loved him because he was in his time a stunningly attractive man. I've seen the young Paul Newman, and wow. I mean, about as handsome as they come in a lot of ways. Um, guys especially gravitate and gravitated to Paul Newman because because Paul Paul Newman, and I don't want to start the whole like sackcloth and ashes thing right now, but I will, I'll just give a couple opening statements. We'll get to it later on. Uh, we'll talk about what else is coming up uh, later on in the program. A whole bunch of watches, lots of guests, uh, interesting news from the Emerson home front. We'll get to all of that. We'll talk about <clears throat> last night's Mad Men. We'll recap Friday's debate. We'll look forward to Thursday's debate. There's not enough time to do all this stuff. No, no. But the observation about Paul Newman is is that Paul Newman himself and the characters that Paul Newman played he depicted guys that other guys want to be like, and not in, and not in just sort of a badass, uh, you know, sort of walking tall, ass kicking kind of way. Uh, Paul Newman depicted men of great courage and character, men who had depth and strength and decency, and men who had uh, independence, men who had a little bit of an outlaw streak while remaining good-hearted. Uh, and, you know, nowhere is that more prominent than in Cool Hand Luke. And so I got a long email from Seamus, our uh, devoted listener and a longtime P1 in Colorado. And he just, uh, you know, he sent me a long email about how Cool Hand Luke made a, a strong impact on his life. And I think he said, actually, Cool Hand Luke is to this day his favorite film. And, you know, like a lot of guys, I saw Cool Hand Luke when I was young. I saw it when I was maybe, maybe 17. And it was right around, I mean, it, it was in my adolescence, around the same time that I was reading things like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And in many ways, it's an analog to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, because it is about the man who is fighting sort of the intangible uh, they, you know, uh, a man who is fighting the man, a man who's fighting uh, the system and, and sort of ill-defined authority figures. A very American character. Absolutely. Uh, and a Jesus figure in a lot of ways. Uh, and obviously, uh, uh, Lucas Jackson is not unlike Randall McMurphy in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, is a very strong Christ figure, but he's a man who is fighting with himself. I don't mean to sound so high-minded about it. It's a prison movie, but he's, you know, it is man against himself, it is man against God, and it is man against the authority. Uh, and it just, you know, and everybody remembers that no man can eat 50 eggs, and you know, sometimes nothing can be a real cool hand and all of that, but it is uh, to me and to a lot of other guys, not unlike Randall Patrick McMurphy, uh, Lucas Jackson showed, that you could you could sort of stay strong in the face of opposition. It wasn't necessary just to lie down to every authority figure that came your way. And that made a real impression on me growing up. And I'm just I'm going to say these two notes, and then we'll kind of move on, and we'll, we'll dovetail back on this later. I'm going to start everything off with a down note here today. But I made a couple notes to myself right here. One is Lucas Jackson and Cool Hand Luke, not unlike a lot of other people who I admire, he exhibited what I call the defiance in the face of certain defeat. You're right on at the end of the movie. But, you know, he's on the run from the jail, and the cops are outside, and he knows it's probably all over for him. Uh, but as Freddie Mercury says in The Show Must Go On, he says he faces it with a grin. And the other, the two great quotes from Cool Hand Luke, there's two. There's one where George, uh, George Kennedy, no, I always do this, George Hamilton, George Kennedy. Not sure which George it is. I think it's George Kennedy, the guy who plays Dragline. He's coming into the church where Luke, where Luke has run after breaking out of jail, and the cops are outside waiting for him. And, of course, Luke has taken the jaking out. He's breaking out of jail all the time, and he's fighting, and he won't give in, and he won't bow down, and he won't break or whatever. And so George Kennedy comes in, and he says, Luke, they're going to let us come back. And then he says, all you have to do 
is give up. And that's, I mean, it seems so heavy-handed now. But, I mean, you watch that, especially when you're, you're like a teenage guy or anybody who's sort of dealing with authority figures. And when he said, all you got to do is give up, Luke. And Luke just gets that smile on his face, and you know it's never going to happen. It's just a, a defining moment. And the other defining line from Cool Hand Luke, and it's the last one, then we'll move on. I played it right at the beginning of the show here, right before the uh, Plastic Jesus song. When Luke is talking to him after breaking out of jail, and he says, They didn't get my mind right. Not with no stick. No, sir. So there you go. That is what it's all about, my friends. All right. Okay, this is official now. The House has defeated that $700 billion emergency rescue package, ignoring urgent pleas from the president and bipartisan congressional leaders to quickly bail out the struggling economy. Once again, the House has defeated the $700 billion emergency rescue package. What's now? Uh, what's next? Who knows? I would imagine chaos and open gunplay in the street, Tim. Outstanding. We're going to be joined today by CNN Radio correspondent Dick Juliano, who will join us from the Hill uh, to talk about all of the shenanigans and the tomfoolery and the hooliganism and the whatnot and the Mahoygan that's coming up uh, later on today as this, the reverberations from this defeat of the budget bill continue to sort of roll out. We'll talk to CNN Radio correspondent Steve Kastenbaum, who was at the presidential debate on Friday. We'll talk more about the debate itself here in a moment. We'll talk to CNN Radio correspondent James Roop, who's going back to be incarcerated in the living hell of the O.J. Simpson trial in Las Vegas. Coming up later on in the 2 o'clock hour, we'll talk to Bobby Fatboy Roberts from Rock 101 KUFO. He's going to uh, close out his top five. Last week, he had the top five opening credit songs. Top five rock or pop songs that open the credits of a film. Today, he's going to have the top five closing credit songs from a film. What else? Uh, Geek Watch coming up today. Penis Watch coming up today. Britney Watch <coughs> coming up today. Uh, big bosomed uh, actress off the market. Uh, notes from Friday. Uh, all of that. This is Tim Riley working on the following stories for your edification. So, nobody knows what's going to happen now that the House has just defeated that $700 billion emergency rescue package. Elsewhere, Wachovia has been sold to Citigroup. You know, the day is going to come when you're just going to go into a place that's going to be a big generic sign that just says bank, bank, and black <laughs> letters with a white background. But, you know, wouldn't you it might feel as well be. Not that it matters at this point. Wouldn't you feel more confident in that at this point? It's, or money. Yeah. Just so people know what they're getting into. <laughs> so that's what's happening. And uh, Wachovia is sold. Uh, and we'll continue to update this. But what else is there left to say? The House has defeated that emergency pact. All right. A Hawaii man is charged with trying to bury stolen silver in an Oregon forest. Mayor Potter tries to block the Oregonian for putting in a DVD critical of Muslims into a Sunday paper. didn't work. It's going to be at least 90 degrees today. An 85-year-old Hillsborough woman wrestles a robber who ends up getting just $6. A Tualatin man brings a gun to bed to threaten his girlfriend. And lots of a Palin stuff. Uh, so we, uh... She's just creating a cult following now everywhere. All of these other stories pale in comparison, Tim. I suppose so. They pale in comparison. Love, the language of... Whatever. Uh, do you want to hear a, a clip from Cool Hand Luke? Uh, I don't think I can take any more Cool Hand Luke at the moment. Can we Can we do it on the other? Yes. What, is, what is the clip? What is it? Well, it's a short clip. It's the most memorable one. From All right. Let's go ahead and do that now. Uh, and yeah. then we'll talk to Sarah. We'll find out what happened this weekend. Already people calling in about this. So uh, here's, uh, ladies and gentlemen, more Cool Hand Luke. Don't you ever talk that way to me. Never! What we've got here is failure to communicate. Some men you just can't reach. 
so you get what we had here last week, which is the way he wants it. Well, he gets it. And I don't like it any more than you, man. All right, so that's uh, the one and only Struther Martin there. Yes. Now, I can be a good guy, or I can be a real mean bitch. It's all up to you. He's just so creepy. Mm -hmm. And he's especially creepy because they don't make him. They didn't get, like, some guy who's six feet tall and 300 pounds to play the role of the warden or, the you know, what the boss, the captain, whatever it is. Um, you know, and I think Frank Darabont kind of took a page from Cool Hand Luke when they did the Shawshank Redemption. Where they have, and there's a lot of parallels in the Shawshank Redemption, where the guy who was the warden is a very small, sort of presumably religious man, who of course is deeply corrupt. Andy Dufresne is broken at one point, just like Cool Hand Luke is, uh, but at the end he escapes eternally, just as Lucas Jackson does. All right. Uh, let's see. Uh, we're joined today, as always, by the lovely and talented Sarah X. Dillon, resplendent in her shirt from Gillies in Pasadena, Texas. It's true. I know I was just hearing him talk about the 90-degree weather. I'm like, this is going to be way too hot. I am so covetous home. of that shirt. That's like Richie's Viva McRib shirt, your shirt from Mickey Gillies Club in Texas. You uh, and Lisa. Lisa was so mad when uh, she saw that I got this. i got to get me one of them. How was your weekend? It was fun. Uh, you know, we had a debate party with a couple of my friends and, on Friday and then uh, went to a wedding on Saturday, then went to the river and to a barbecue on Sunday. So it was jam-packed with lots of beer drinking and politics talking. Yeah. It was fun. And so this is, so we'll go back to Friday here and we'll talk about the debate, which is, uh, I mean, and then we've already got Thursday's debate coming up, which is looming on the horizon, just like, I mean, that's a, I got to tell you, that's just going to be some summer cage match, uh, the debate this Friday. So we'll talk more about that. We will be carrying the vice presidential debate this Thursday, by the way. Uh, with running commentary from Storm Large and myself. I think I'm going to show up, Mike. Are you going to be part of that? I certainly would. I All wouldn't right. mess it for the world. And Storm Large? Yes. Goodness gracious. Uh, so this coming Thursday at 6 p.m., AM 970, we'll be carrying the vice presidential debate live from New York City. Uh, and Storm Large, myself, and Tim Riley will be offering running commentary throughout the vice presidential debate that is live on this station this Thursday at 6 p.m. More details on that. Um, so... Friday, I was working here, had to do some crap, and then Laura was working until 7.30, and Laura was like, you know, make sure you TiVo the debate. I don't want to miss a moment. I don't want to miss a thing. TiVo a half hour before. TiVo the two hours afterward. I want to be able to watch all of the recap. I want to be able to see Henderson Cooper's thoughts on it. So I recorded uh, basically from about 5 p.m. until about 10 p.m. on Friday. I get home, and it was by the time I got home, it was like maybe 7. I mean, the debate was almost over, and I had just the greatest willpower. I didn't watch the debate until Laura got home. And so I get this call from Sarah at like 7.31, and I answer the phone, and she's like, so what did you think about what McCain, and I had to stop you, and I'm like, no, 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 don't tell me, don't tell me, don't tell me, I haven't seen any of it yet. And you said, what do you mean you haven't seen any of it? And I said, well, i got to wait for Lara to get home, because we got to watch it together. And the great phrase, you said, you must really love your wife to not have watched the debate live. And that's the thing, man. I had to wait till like 8 o'clock to start watching because I had to wait for her to get home from work. And then we started for the... We didn't even watch the debate for the beginning. We actually went back and we watched a half an hour of CNN's pregame coverage. Then we watched the debate. Then we watched like two hours of recap afterward. So I didn't even get done watching the debate till probably 11 o'clock. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was just... I mean, it, watching anything political with my wife is just an exercise in hilarity, too. Because you can tell at any moment she's about to crush the remote into powder. She just sits there and she just screams profanity. I can't even, I mean, I lost track of how many times she refilled her glass of wine. Just every time McCain was, would open his mouth and go, my friends, what Mr. Obama doesn't understand? And my wife would just go, ah, F this. And she was just, just another big glass full of Merlot right down the gullet. So, um, 
so I'm on. I don't even know if we should do a little bit of. Should we talk about the debate here, Tim? Do you have sound for the debate? I, I don't. I, I can get some later. Well, let's do this then. Um, let's take this call. We've got somebody who's been holding here. Then let's do a little bit of uh, debate recap so here. Find here. Uh, and then uh, you know, and, and then we'll we'll break and we'll come back. We've got some folks around the corner. All kinds of stuff to get through. Uh, hi, you're on the Rick Emerson Radio Program in this action-packed Monday. Hello. Hey, everyone. What's uh, up? Just want to start off by saying uh, I was listening to uh, Friday's podcast yesterday. Yes, sir. I just got to say that was that was an outstanding show. Really great. Uh, really, it was just a great week all around. Uh, well, thank you, my friend. I appreciate that. Yes, yes. And um, I had a question uh, too about last week. Yes. Did you guys ever reveal the uh, source of the mystery sound? Uh, no, and in fact, we haven't even made the mystery sound noise again. I uh, I think I have I it have, around here. Yeah, and I have it next to me. Sarah actually has in her possession the object that made the mystery sound noise. Uh, I don't know what it is. Sarah's the only one who knows. Let me see if I've got this. This is the new mystery noise. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me see if I can turn this up. Uh, right there. So I don't really know what that is. <laughs> All right. Uh, one more thing. Yes. Yeah. Goodbye, and have a great week. Oh, thank you. <laughs> See, that was like a thing inside of a thing right there. All right. Uh, well, let's quickly go around the room. Uh, debate observations from Friday. Sarah Dillon, go. Mm. Oh, I don't know. I've, I've, they both had a lot of valid points. I don't know. I just, I, I'd rather hear your speculation on it first. Like, when I, when I first finished, I, I was like, I can tell you're just McCain. getting angry even thinking about no, it. No, I think... Uh, I thought Obama was very gracious in the, in the way that he was speaking a lot, and I feel like McCain just came out swinging unnecessarily yeah. in a lot of points and he was just um just like speaking down to him and just not making you know what the big thing was too is i didn't see mccain make eye contact with obama once he's sitting there staring and like smacking his weird lizard lips and like looking <laughs> around and but obama's sitting there addressing mccain directly whereas mccain won't even look up from the podium right. and just like keeps looking at the at the person which i don't know if that's what they're supposed to do or not. it just looked really weak to me obama really only did the one direct address to john mccain and it's when he turned and he did that whole laundry list of like you know, you said you said we'd be welcomed in Iraq. Uh, you know, you were wrong. You said that we'd find the weapons of mass destruction. You were wrong. He turned and addressed that directly to McCain, although he didn't end that. He didn't wrap it up very well. I was waiting for that little laundry list of you were wrong, you were wrong, you were wrong to end with a real strong punch, and he didn't. Mm -hmm. uh, they kind of addressed everything to the camera and to the moderator. I really did like when Obama brought up the fact, he's like, you know what, we've been a joke basically for eight years. He's like, right. I want to build our reputation again. I want to get us back on track. I really like that. So McCain did a good job. I thought they, it, it was entertaining all around. Right. I have a soundbite. McCain warned that Obama's plans for Iraq could have serious consequences. Loss of all the fragile sacrifices that we've made of American blood and treasure, which grieves us all, all of that would be lost if we followed Senator Obama's plan to have specific dates with withdrawal. You know, using the phrase, all of our blood and treasure, sounds like he views Iraq as one big World of Warcraft battle. So, uh, anyway, the, the, uh, the ratings for this one were down. Yeah. So it wasn't that big. It wasn't, well, because everybody, everybody knows that this is just the overture. That's the thing, right? You know what it is? This is sort of like uh, this is sort of like Van Halen opening for uh, for Ted Nugent, kind of kind of way back in the day, where you know Ted Nugent's sort of great. He's the, presumably the headliner. He's the ostensible draw, and yet everybody knows that it's actually the opening act that is really bringing all the excitement. So it is with this. I mean, it, I mean, regardless of where you stand, who really thought that Obama versus McCain was going to be all that exciting? That's why we didn't carry it. Uh, but this Thursday, everybody, I think. Once you got 15 minutes into Friday's debate, which wasn't tremendously interesting, I think everybody realized, you know, that it's all about Palin versus Biden, and people just started 
calibrating their brains to be looking forward to that. I think people were already sort of disconnected from the debate by, you know, like maybe 6.30 or so. McCain was asked what the lessons of Iraq were. I think the lessons of Iraq are very clear that you cannot have a failed strategy that will then cause you to nearly lose a conflict. The lesson of Iraq is don't go into Iraq. That's the enduring lesson. The lesson of Iraq is the Vietnam generation lost their second war. Yes. Uh, let's see here. What else do we have? Uh, just a couple uh, brief notes. Let's see here. Uh, did you? Were you guys yeah, watching you it on think? CNN by any chance? CNN and MSNBC. So if you're watching. If you were watching on CNN, they did this thing at the bottom, which I, which Laura found distracting, but which I quite liked, which is where they had a dial group result at the bottom. In other words, you know, they set a bunch of people oh, yeah. in a room with a dial, mm -hmm. and you turn the dial up if you like what they're saying. You turn the dial down if you don't like what they're saying. And so they had three lines. They had the Republican line, the Democratic line, and the Independent line. And at the bottom, and it was sort of like a heart monitor, you could see what the focus group from each political persuasion was thinking as the debate went on. And... This is probably a tired observation right now, but those red and blue lines at the bottom really are this country. Because for the most, for the most, most of the night, they were just as far apart from each other as you could possibly have gotten. I mean, in a completely non-fluctuating sense. Uh, let's see, other notes here. Did you catch the weird thing that McCain said about the average South Korean is three inches taller than the average North Korean? I figure that one out. I don't, he that just said strange. that out of the blue for no reason. Yeah. I didn't even. I didn't. I, I should have re uh, captured that sound and brought it in. McCain, Friday's debate. I mean, maybe he was talking about. He's talking about like nutrition? Or something, or, or maybe how it's an oppressive. Maybe you're not allowed to eat or something in North Korea, but he had that statement. He goes, Well, as you know, the average South Korean is three inches taller than the average North Korean. Which was like, that's the closest we got to a Stockdale moment on Friday. Mm -hmm. That's the closest. Earwax! You know, where he's just saying things that don't make any sense. Uh, let's see, next note. Uh, again, about the focus group dials at the, you know, the, you know, the bottom of the screen where you can see the results from the people who are in the other room impaneled judging the debate. At about two-thirds of the way through the debate, around 7 o'clock or so, the line, they just started flatlining. Everybody, as I think a lot of us did, everybody just lost interest. I mean, like the 15th time they got into the conversation about, well, I would not meet with it. What do you mean by preconditions? I mean, everybody was just like looking at their watch like, ah, all right, I'm just going to go watch The Office again. So everybody got really bored with the debate around 7 o'clock, I think. Uh, I kept looking at my watch. Went, this can't be over now. Oh, it just kept going on and on and on, and there was just no knockout punch. There were no memorable lines at all. I have to say, the only thing I really remember from Friday's debate is the fact that Obama, for good or bad, kept saying, uh, you know, you're right, John, and John is right about that. Obama kept, which McCain never did. Obama kept agreeing with McCain, and maybe that is a bad move. Mm -hmm. Then again, maybe he's trying to reach across the aisle and look like he can be bipartisan or whatever. Also, little clever things you notice that McCain kept calling him Senator Obama, but Obama kept calling him John. I noticed that. Yeah, somebody made that. He like, say Senator McCain every once in a while, but for the most part, he's like, and John knows this. John knows that him, him and John and I have spoken about this. Totally. Uh, that is not unlike during uh, the first Bush presidency when he kept calling uh, Saddam Hussein Saddam Hussein, which apparently means like tiny penis or something in in, in some other language. Uh, so those are all my notes uh, from Friday. I don't have I haven't seen your email yet, Sarah. Is it? Uh... Oh no, it's just um, today we've got to keep all CNN correspondence uh, to five minutes or less. So should we no, break yeah, now? Yeah. All right, we'll take a break now. We'll come back. Uh, we're gonna have Dick Uliano, Jim uh, Roop. Uh, Steve Kastenbaum, and uh, exciting news from my household. So stay there. Back after this on The Rick Emerson.
Hi, hello. It's the Rick Emerson Radio Program. It's 503-733-2970. 503-733-2970. All right. In some sort of theoretical sense, we're going to be talking to Steve Kastenbaum from New York City here in just a few. Later on, Cena Radio correspondent Dick Uliana will join us. Uh, we'll talk to Jim Roop as well. So, I mean, it's already it's, uh, I mean, just such an unbelievably busy day. We're like 36 minutes. So let's recap. So in the first 36 minutes today, we tried to cover the debate recap. The fact that they voted down, let me see. So I've got this, uh, the bailout proposal, which have been voted down. Uh, we've already talked a bit about Paul Newman. We'll do uh, some more of that later on. Uh, we're going to get your phone calls. Uh, we'll have uh, today's top five coming up later on. Geek Watch, Penis Watch, Britney Watch. We're going to start today, by the way, on ad hoc Palin Watch. And so I- I'm really sort of torn about this because we never did have, we never put together a Hillary Watch, a Biden Watch, a, a Clinton Watch. Uh, we never had a Clinton Watch for Bill Clinton when we, we were on the air. We uh, we have a Bush Watch. That's about it. But I never did anything for any other candidates. But I feel like... Sarah Palin is just this sort of endless cornucopia of insane news. So today we will be starting an ad hoc Palin watch. We'll do the best we can to sort of come up with a with a theme for that. But I uh, we will be taking suggestions about that. As Tina Fey said, you know, uh, perhaps we won't need to use that after uh, the beginning of November. But one never knows in this country of ours. Did you see so. her on the Saturday? Wasn't it her and Amy Poehler? But Amy Poehler was playing Katie Couric. No, and see, I missed it. And I can't, that was another thing. I came in this uh, morning, and everybody was like, hey, did you see Tina Fey doing the Sarah Palin thing? And I missed it. But somebody told me, I don't know if this is true, somebody told me that Tina Fey's Sarah Palin sketch this weekend was comprised almost totally from things that Sarah Palin actually said in the Katie Couric interview. And that's I don't know if that's genius. true or not, or if that's... I don't know if that's, a, if that's a, a sort of meme that's just going around the Internet, but somebody told me that the Sarah Palin sketch from SNL was largely just put together from actual quotations from that Katie Couric interview, which, by the way, not to dwell on Sarah Palin, because we'll be able to th- we're gonna talk about that a little bit later on today and as we sort of you know g- get closer to Thursday, but I went back for reasons sort of lost to me now and watched that whole Katie Couric thing with her again, and it's just excruciating. Uh, I mean, it really does generate a feeling for Sarah Palin, which I didn't think I could actually have, which is sympathy, because you, you realize uh, there's only two possibilities here. Either she's just unbelievably, totally, and completely out of her depth in every... And with Katie Couric, I mean, don't get me wrong, I, mean, I work for CBS, and I'm a big believer in, is this good for the company? But it's not like Katie Couric is really known for the grilling, hard-hitting, Edward R. Murrow-style interview. Katie Couric sounds like she's ambushing you on your front porch like she's Mike Wallace or something. I mean, it's Katie Couric. I mean, they're basically filming her through a lens covered with bacon grease, and they have gentle piano music playing underneath everything. So, really, how difficult could it be to deal with that interview? So, I went back and I watched all nine minutes of it, though, and Sarah Palin is either totally out of her league, or she is playing, like, the greatest game of rope-a-dope that's ever been done, and she's just going to show up on Thursday and just decimate poor Joe Biden. There's really no, there is no third option at this point. Mm-hmm. She's either really, really dumb, or she's some sort of evil super genius, and this is her way to sort of lower expectations so she can go uh, come in and just cream that guy. I mean, there's no middle ground. I mean, nobody can, nobody can play that dumb. Unless they're way, way, way smarter than I give them credit for. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so that'll be this Thursday. Storm and I will be doing running commentary. Tim Riley's going to be part of that as well. So the vice presidential debate live this coming Thursday, 6 oh, p.m. Oh, I'm so excited for that. Oh, I can't see. And that's why, again, that's why the Friday debate was almost just sort of, I mean, I watched it all the way through. Don't get me wrong. I watched half an hour before. I watched the entire debate all the way through. I watched for like two hours afterward. But 
the whole time you just kind of kept wishing it was Thursday. Mm. Again, you know, again, it's sort of like seeing an opening act that you're not really all that jazzed about, and you, you kind of want to like it, and you want to sort of be that guy that gives them a fair chance. But the whole time you're just looking at your watch, wondering how long it is until they, you know, uh, until they roll out the guys that you paid to see. More with them too. Yeah, this well, is like the one and only vice presidential debate. And it was all about foreign policy. What? Let's just be honest. It might be important, but like, isn't all that exciting? So. Uh, so we have this just in. So uh, a deeply, and I'm reading now from Metro News, Dateline, Washington, D.C. Wait, hold on. Did I ever get my Metro News sounder put together? Hold on a second. Metro. All right, wait, let's do this. This is. This just in from Tim Riley. A deeply divided U.S. House has rejected a massive taxpayer bailout of the troubled financial sector. The vote failed 205 to 228. President Bush had been pushing hard for the $700 billion bailout, warning there could be, quote, dire consequences for the national economy without it. Lawmakers are keenly aware that the bailout plan is deeply unpopular across the U.S. More than 130 Republicans voted against the bailout, while 95 Democrats also voted no. So I'm just going to read that. I'm not going to pretend that I understand it, and I'm not going to front like I know what it means for the economy. I just, uh, I pass along the, uh, I pass along the news and... You presumably make heads and tails out of it. Is this Steve? Richie, is this uh, Steve Kastenbaum here? Let's assume it is, since Richie's apparently... CNN Radio Correspondent Steve Kastenbaum joining us now today. Hello, sir. You've assumed correctly. All right. Sorry about that. Richie's off. (laughs) He's off doing a thing or something. He's... Looking at his stock losses? Maybe. I, can I tell you, Tim Riley said the greatest, saddest thing to me the other day. I was talking about last week. There was this day that I only got like three hours of sleep because I had this outside project I was working on, and I was tossing and then turning, and I got up at three in the morning, and I never got back to bed and whatever. And so I came in the next day, and I'm talking about, oh, I've only got three hours of sleep. I just, uh, I'm all out of it. And Tim said, I only got three hours of sleep, and it was for a different reason. And I said, what's that? And he said, I was up all night trying to figure out how to make my financial picture look less grim. I finally realized it couldn't be done, so I just went to bed. So Wow. Uh, all right, so it's a, it's a busy day for you guys. Um, I, I don't even know where to start. Well, first of all, you were covering Friday's debate, were you not? Yes. What was the general sense in the hall uh, before the debate and after the debate in terms of expectations and then who delivered and who maybe was seen not to have delivered on Friday? I was anchoring our coverage from back here in the bureau. We had uh, a couple of other reporters uh, from CNN Radio on scene. And, uh, you know, for, up until the last couple of uh, hours before the debate, it wasn't even clear whether there was going to be a debate right. because of right. this, this bailout package, uh, you know, mess going on in Washington, D.C. Um, you know, I think, you know, I don't know that they convinced anybody to change their votes that night. Uh, they were really speaking to those undecided voters uh, out there, and it's not clear uh, who registered the most with them. Barack Obama still uh, leading John McCain uh, in the polls right now. He's gaining a boost from, from the financial mess right now, but who knows what's going to happen as a result of this uh, vote in, in, uh, in the House of Representatives right now. Uh, almost uh, 100 Democrats, they were saying, uh, did, voted against this bailout package now, so that, that could work against him. And so, let's just sort of bottom line this for people, because the thing that you hear repeated over and over again, like the last, I don't know, two weeks, they keep saying, well, look, if this situation doesn't get solved, it's going to trickle down and it's going to make it harder for you to, you know, you're not going to get a raise. If you're unemployed, it's going to be harder to get a job. If your company is struggling, it's going to make it more difficult for your company to get back on its feet. If you've got a uh, hemorrhaging 401k, as you almost certainly do, it's going to make it much more difficult for that to get back up to 100%. So is, is all of that true, or is that 
I mean, are those warnings a little too dire? Well, here's here's the deal. Here's what it boils down to. The credit freeze means that companies of all sizes, large and small, are having a very hard time getting short-term loans right now. It, it, the money is just not there. The capital, the, the banks don't have the money to lend at the end of the day. And as a result, if they can't get these short-term loans, that means they can't actually do business. They rely on those short-term loans for their operating costs because if you're in a business, whether whether you're providing a product that's an intellectual product or, or something physical, no, regardless of what it is, the way business works, you, you normally don't get paid for that product for up to 90 days. Right. So while while you're waiting for that money to come in, you need other money to operate on. So you take out these small term, uh, these these short term loans to to pay for your operating costs and even maybe to pay your payroll. Companies can't get that money right now, and that means they can't do business. All right, but please forgive uh, what might seem like a bumpkin type question, mm-hmm. but that just seems like an irresponsible way to do business. For in other words, that would be that sort of it seems to me that is like the corporate equivalent of some guy who's taking out a payday loan every month because he's waiting for that check to arrive, and he's constantly 90 days behind what he actually needs to live, and so every month he's just going down the street and getting one of those like ready check places uh, to front him the rent money. Yeah, well, it's a good analogy, but that's the way business is done and has been operated for a long time. It's not like a, a retail transaction where you pay for your uh, what you're buying the second you get it. You know, you, you uh, very often you know you provide a service and then you send them a bill for the service. Is essentially is right. kind of how it works. You know, uh, sort of like uh, let's say you hire a plumber and uh, the plumber sends you the bill after the job is done, it's sort of along those lines, you know, so the bill doesn't get paid right away. And as a result, you know, that plumber still needs to, uh, still needs to operate his business. And in, in respect, for the plumber, his business is small enough so that, you know, he's got enough uh, turnaround and, and low overhead that he's able to get by. But in the bigger companies, when it works that way, you, you have, let's say you even have 50 employees, not not 1,000 or 2,000. You know, just paying those employees becomes a problem. Right. Uh, all right. I know you uh, all are very under the gun today, so we're going to let you go, and we will undoubtedly talk to you uh, more in depth about all of this uh, tomorrow as today continues to unfold into one gigantic cataclysm of implosion. So, well, we don't know where this is going to go because there may be another vote today. There uh, may not be. Ooh, this is going to be a pretty rough day. All right. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day, my friend, to whatever extent it's possible. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Okay. Thanks, Rick. Thank you, Steve Kastamon. We'll take a break here. When we come back, if you're on hold, hang tight. Uh, phones blowing up, as they say. We'll get your calls around the corner. CNN Radio correspondent Dick Giuliano and then right into the Ministry of Truth with Tim Riley. Stay there. Hello, it's the Rick Emerson Radio Program. It's 503-733-2970. Coming up in just moments, Tim Riley at the Ministry of Truth later on today. Uh, Geek Watch, Britney Watch coming up. Top five. Uh, the stuff unfolding faster than we can even list it, much less explicate it. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, let's now welcome from the Hill CNN Radio Correspondent, Dick Uliano. Hello, sir. Hey, Rick. Good afternoon from Washington. Uh, so to say that it is a busy and hectic day for you is to do a disservice to you, to those words, and to the day itself. So where, where are we at? So, the, so the, the bailout deal just went down by a substantial margin, did it not? This is a stinging defeat for President Bush. 
and the leaders of Congress, in particular House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who runs the House side of Congress. Uh, the congressional leaders uh, and the Bush administration struck a deal this weekend on a financial bailout bill. That's all well and good, but you've got to get the votes of the members. Uh, the Congress needs to vote on these things. And when it came time for the House to vote at midday, the financial bailout bill, the $700 billion bailout bill that the White House and the congressional leaders say is needed to rescue the United States economy, went down in flames, Rick. Is this because Congress people are uh, hearing from their electorate that the electorate yes. doesn't like it, and they're more worried about their own seats than they are about the president or Nancy Pelosi That's right now? That's absolutely part of it. Ninety-four Democrats did not vote for this bill. They voted no. When you run Congress, as the Democrats run Congress, Nancy Pelosi, uh, you've got to get your, your, your own uh, members behind you. Now, what was going on, as we understand it, is some of these members were going to the leaders and saying, look, I can't vote for this or I'm gonna, I might lose my seat. Right. I'm getting beat up by the guy I'm running against or the woman I'm running against. And uh, so some of them, uh, you know, were perhaps given permission to vote no. Well, when the Republicans saw this, the Republicans were leery of the bill to begin with. And they saw 94 Democrats voting against it. Well, they said, to heck with you. We're not going to vote for it. And we're not going to take the fall for this thing. So 133 Republicans voted against it. The bill goes down in flames. A stunning defeat for President Bush, who used the bully pulpit of the presidency, primetime address to the nation, remarks this morning, remarks the other day, uh, written statements from the White House, all calling for support, suggesting that the votes were there to get it passed, and they weren't. Is there going to be another vote on this in the immediate future? There will be no vote today, according to the Republicans. They said they're going home. Uh, tomorrow is the Jewish holiday, Rosh Hashanah, the new year. Uh, they will come back, presumably. Uh, well, I shouldn't say presumably. I've got to tell you, Rick, the, the leaders of the Republican Party have spoken, and uh, there's been uh, someone at the White House who has spoken. The Democrats in the House have not spoken yet, but who, the people who have have said they don't know what the next step is. Uh. Well, that's comforting. All right. Uh, I know you've got a, an insane day to deal with there, so I will let you go. As always, uh, your, uh, your insight and your reporting is appreciated, my friend. Thank, Thank you, Rick. Rick. All right. There you go. Dick Giuliano from uh, CNN. All right. Ugh. Panic in the air. All right. Uh, let's get a couple of these, and then we will join Tim Riley at the uh, Ministry of Truth. Hi. You're on the Rick Emerson Show. Hello. Just me? Oh, is it? Uh, yes, it is. Oh, is this our friend Chris Neven? It is. Did you was that an was that an ironic? Is this me or were you was that a legitimate inquiry you just made? Uh, 50-50. All right, uh, Chris Neven from uh, OnTheVig.com. Hello, sir. How are you? What brings you to the phone today, my friend? Well, wow, Juliano, uh, I've been trying to, to figure out what the heck happened here, and, and Juliano's report was actually crystallized a lot of stuff for me. So I called because uh, the House website is down. Uh, I don't know if everybody's trying to figure out what the heck's going on or what happened, but I've been trying to figure out what my congressman, Brian Baird, how he voted on this thing this morning, and I can't find out. So I call his Vancouver office to say, hey, how did he vote this morning? They don't know. <laughs> well, does that does that really surprise you? I mean, really, let's, well, let's be honest. It's his office. I called his office. <laughs> How did the congressman vote? We don't know. We'll have to get back to you. We'll have to get a we'll look. I don't know. We'll take it under advisement. Holy smoke. Uh, yes, it's almost hard so to believe I, we don't know, have a functioning government. At this point, I, I seriously wonder. Uh, so, uh, man, I don't know. Hey, what about that Bristol Palin, though? <laughs> oh, 
she's you know she's getting married this weekend. That's what I hear. I hear yeah. that Bristol Palin is going to get married this weekend, and therefore Sarah Palin may not show up to the debate. Darn tootin'. Yeah, well, she's got a wedding to prepare. It's a shotgun to go clean and so and a moose to go field dress. No, you you heard know. it here first, and at uh, onthevig.com. Onthevig.com. We broke it last night. All right. Thank you, my friend. Thanks, sir. All right, there you go. Uh, Chris Neven, ladies and gentlemen. All right. It's 503-733-2970. Hi, you're on the Rick Emerson Show. Hello. Hi, Rick. Hi, what's up? I had a suggestion for your Palin Watch song. Yes, sir. Forgive me, I can't remember the artist or the song name. It was a popular pop song back in the 90s, but it went, uh, it was a female singer, and it went something about, I'm a bitch, um, I'm a child, I'm a mother, I'm a Oh, Meredith Brooks, bitch. Right. Yeah. Eh, probably a little too, uh, probably a little too, for the same reason that we did not use the bitches back for Hillary Clinton. We can do better than that, sir. Let's be honest. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Uh, bye. There you go. Uh, hi, you're on the Rick Emerson Show. Hello. Hey, how's it going? What's up? Uh, just calling on a lighter note to wonder if you guys watched uh, season three premiere of Dexter last night. Uh, the season three no. premiere of Dexter. Uh, I did watch that. I have seen it. Uh, and i got to say, I was not entirely sold at the beginning on the character of Jimmy Smits, but by the end of the episode, he had me in his finely manicured hands. I completely agree. Yeah, I dig that guy. Uh, I do still find uh, Dexter's sister to be strangely hot in sort of a... A way that I can't quite quantify, her in that uh, button nose of hers. So does he. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> um, you know who I don't care for is that other that other guy, like muscular kind of, the, the guy with the sort of like the, like a like a like a buzz cut, and he wears the badger on his neck, and he's that guy who goes. Just remember that I did you a solid. That guy. Yeah. Well, I was just noticing that it was that they didn't introduce him at all. They just kind of expected you to know who he was. Yeah, I I, I don't care. That seems a little. Was, was he not somebody from the previous season? I don't know. I don't think so. I think he's like it seems like he's been introduced as the guy who's going to be Deb's new sort of man now that uh, older sexy FBI dad guy has gone away. Mm -hmm. I said the exact same thing. I was sitting there watching it with my girlfriend, and, I, yeah. and they, I said, "This is the guy who has not been introduced to Deb will be effing in two episodes." Yeah, no, it's uh, I. It, that show, as much as I love Dexter, they do telegraph things a little too heavy-handedly for my taste. But that being said, it's still uh, it is a delightful indulgence. That show. I agree. Just wanted to make sure you guys were caught up and we're in the loop. All right. Thank you, my friend. Yep. Right, I'm just go. really glad that the person who is uh, well, both of the people that are eliminated in the last few episodes of um, season two. I'll just say it. It's Lila. And Dokes. There you go. Look, dude, hey, the season's been over for five months. Yeah, no, longer Get on than the train. That. Longer than that. No, yeah. honestly, Dokes graded me so much the wrong way. Like, I just don't really like a lot of angry, yelly people. Yeah. And his screaming and tantrums. The only thing I will say about Dokes and the way that they got rid of him is, I feel like that was a little bit of a... I had problems with season two. I liked it. I don't think I'd watch season two again. I think that it was a little bit of a cop-out with, with Dokes getting blown up like that because... They never made – I wanted to see Dexter have to make the choice. I wanted Dexter to have to decide within himself, does he kill him or does he let him go? In other words, does he stick to Harry's code or does he go the way of whatever he calls it, the dark passenger? Does he choose right or wrong? And I, and I felt that, like, having him blown up, it there was a little deus ex machina that I didn't care for because it took it, – it, 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 it absolved Dexter of having to make that choice about whether to kill him. And I, I wanted to see him, him. maybe – I will say, though, the happiest moment of my life is when Lila got killed. Oh, my She was, I she almost... hit that postcard from Florida. I'm like, oh, bitch. I almost quit watching season two because of her. I mean, just such a badly drawn, badly acted, badly written, badly directed character, in my opinion. And I don't care if that accent's real or not. It sounds fake. So uh, I'll do a couple more. I will actively not watch a movie with her in it. Oh, no. no. She was one of the worst things that's happened to TV in recent memory. But I'm, But she's dead now. Hi, you're on the Rick Emerson Show. Hello. 
Well, hey there, Rick. How What's you up? doing? Hey. Sarah, Tim. Hello. Hello. Okay, I saw on your website this weekend, I'm not sure if you just explain what that um, news report is with the, the serial killer and uh, the Rick Emerson written in blood. Um, realize how strange that sounds to people who haven't seen it. <laughs> Uh, well, I'll just say this. Go to, uh, go to rickemerson.com and embed it. I think it actually is, uh, I think it's the second entry. I think I put a new one up since then. Uh, but if it's the, it's the video entry. You'll see an embedded video. Uh, watch that at your leisure and, um, I'll, how about this? Watch it today. If, and if, uh, if you don't put the pieces together, I'll, I see, I I'll explain it tomorrow. All right. So watch it today. Think on it tonight. I'll explain it tomorrow. Oh, okay, I, I I guess I can wait. All right, thank you, sir. Goodbye, yeah, thank you. Uh, let's see, we'll do one more, and then we will join Tim Riley at the Ministry of Truth. Uh, hi, you're on the Rick Emerson Radio Program uh, on KCMD Portland, sir. Matter as the case may be. That is bitching. I, I think I waited all of maybe a minute and a half to get on. That is uh, cheers to you, sir. Well, let's uh, make it everything you were hoping for. Hey, you know what? Uh, I listened to all the uh, obviously the uh, you know the nasty economics news and. Uh, there are a number of points that uh, fail to be brought out uh, as uh, everyone kind of uh, convinces about things. Uh, you, in fact, you, you brought up something, Kimmer, which uh, CNN correspondent you were talking to just a, a while ago about. Uh, you were talking about needing credit even just to pay uh, payrolls and right. things like that. And then you, you made a remark that, well, that, that seems like a – a rather irresponsible way of doing business. Well, it's certainly, I, I will put it this way, it is yet another way in which businesses seem to be extended courtesies uh, and allowances that they would never extend to people. If a guy acted, if, if a person ran their own personal finances that way, we would have zero sympathy for them. Okay, here's the education on it, though, is that is the nature of our economy and has been for a very, very long time. Well, and here we are. Well, it's so. Yeah. Okay, I'll give you. A, let me ask you this. Okay, if if, if there's a thousand total dollars, yes. and you come to me for a loan, you say uh, uh, I need a thousand dollars. I say, okay, I'll give you a thousand dollars, and I need it back at ten percent interest. Where is the ten percent coming from? In other words, it doesn't if, exist. If it doesn't exist. That is the nature of our global economy. We are. So when when someone says, well, how is it that when we go into debt, the value of the dollar falls? Well, because well, it's because they print more money out of nowhere. Yeah. It's coming out of thin right. air. Right. That's the that is the nature of well, economics today. That is the entire problem. Well, I understand. Well, I, that is certainly. And again, I don't know a whole lot about economics, but I do know, and to some degree, blah blah blah. They print more money to pay, you know, which defla you know devalues the dollar and, and so forth and whatnot. Well, one principle you can look up if you care to do so, and it's it's a fundamental principle to economics is fractional banking. It's just the way that banking is done, and credit is needed because guess what else? No one has cash. There is no cash anywhere. So if we say that it's irresponsible, well, how else is the economy going to actually function? Because there is no cash. This is so weird. I feel like I'm listening to a hybrid speech where you're like half Neo in the Matrix and then you're half um, Ned Beatty in Network. So, all right. Thank, <laughs> thank you, you sir. All right, there you go. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, at the Ministry of Truth, Tim Riley. It's time for the Rick Emerson Show's new news hour, only on AM 970, The Talker. And now, from the Ministry of Truth, this is Tim Riley. It goes down in flames. The $700 billion financial bailout, gone, at least for now. Yes, the House voted against it. House Republicans are blaming the evil Nancy Pelosi. 
after they failed to pass a massive, massive bailout bill. House Majority Leader John Boehner said Pelosi upset the GOP making a speech the other day, and she is not to be forgiven. We've put everything we had into getting the votes to get there today. Uh, but uh, the speaker had to give a partisan voice that, that poisoned uh, our conference, uh, caused the number of members that we thought we could get to go south. Once again, John Boehner says it's all Nancy Pelosi's fault. I do believe that uh, we could have gotten there today uh, had it not been uh, for this partisan speech that the speaker gave on the floor of the House. Is it all Nancy Pelosi's fault? Is that the new it's all Bill yeah. Clinton's fault? Mm -hmm. All right. It's all Nancy Pelosi's yeah, fault. Sure. So uh, stocks plummeted on Wall Street even before the 228 to 205 vote to reject the bill was announced on the House floor. Uh, the president uh, said it had to be done, but people just ignored him. A White House <laughs> spokesman said the president is, quote, very disappointed. Over here. Uh, that from his latest speaker, whose name is Tony Frato. Uh, no. Wait, what happened to Dana Perino? The hottest balls, Dana Perino. I don't know. She's been gone. You know, a guy sent me a sort of quasi-stalking picture of her the other day. Uh, he was at the same airport where she was. Dana Perino was the former White House press secretary uh, and, and hot. And he took a photo of it and sent it to me, which is why it's the best audience. I was like, check out this photo I took of Dana Perino. She doesn't even know I'm looking at her. And I got to tell you, just in a little cell phone photo, she looked uh, she looked quite luscious. Uh, so Dick Giuliano and I didn't – Dick and I have an interesting sort of, you know, dynamic when we speak. He he obviously uh, gives the news objectively. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I don't, I don't sully his playpen with my uh, ruminations and theories. But when he was talking about President Bush using, well, Rick – well, Rick, George Bush used the bully pulpit of the White House. And it's not even really a pulpit. It's just sort of a footstool at this point. Mm -hmm. And there's really not... I mean, the idea that George Bush, who has an approval rating of like four, could go on television and go, oh, I'm asking you to do it, so it has to be done. And th 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 therefore, everybody would just accede. I don't even think people hear him anymore. I think George W. Bush at this point is like Beetlejuice at the very end of the movie when the uh, voodoo guy shrinks his head way down. And he's just doing that... <laughs> thing and it's like you can't even you can't even really register what's coming out of his mouth that's where george w bush is at this point so uh sayonara friend so that's it for now apparently there could be another vote on this but nobody's promising anything at this point well i think dick giuliano flat out said there wouldn't be because the republicans are going home and i think i will simply say that the reason the republicans game uh gave for going home i do believe is that it is rosh hashanah which is the jewish new year mm -hmm. so i believe that is the reason that the republican party gave for going home for the weekend, but that being said, and he said he didn't even know if they were going to come back. It's like, well, Rick, presumably they'd come back, but what do I know? So, you know, I, it, well, never mind. It would be, never mind, never mind, I'm not going to say it. Uh, let's see. Hi, you're on the uh, Rick Emerson radio program. Hello. 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 Is this Rick? Yes, it is. Hello, sir. It's you. Uh, Rick, um, my comment is this. Uh, if you look at the, the uh, election before they uh, pick the vice presidential uh, candidates, you've got, uh, you've got uh, Barack Obama and you've got John McCain, both good men, both senators. Right. And uh, you don't know which way the wind's going to blow. And so uh, you come out and you get Joe Biden, and you look at Joe Biden, and there's, uh, you know, you've got Joseph that's got two E's in it, and uh, Biden's got an E in it. So Palin is a genius. There are no E's on the Republican ticket. <laughs> and so from what what, what can we what can right we glean now, right from now, this? Barack sir. Obama is reading Gadsby from cover to cover, trying to figure out how this no E strategy is going to play. Did out. you just make a Gadsby reference? I did, Rick. I did. This is uh, Wyatt from way long ago. 
All right, dude, that is the best thing I've ever heard in my life, the Gadsby reference. It's the Gadsby. It's the Gadsby ticket. The Republicans are very intelligent, Rick. By the way, Gadsby, just for people who don't know this, not the great Gadsby, but about Gadsby, G-A-D-S-B-Y, is a 40,000-word uh, novel without the letter E. And the guy did it on a bet, and he tied down the E on his typewriter to make sure one didn't slip in. 40,000-word novel, no E's, Gadsby. All right, that is... Well done, my friend. Game, set, match. All right. Thank you, sir. There you go. That was, I had no, I thought he was going to be like some numerology freak or something. Like some guy in a pointy wizard hat who says, and the E is a powerful letter and uh, it correlates to five, which Nostradamus made reference to, you know, like one of those guys you'd see on that Penn and Teller show. So and then he went the Gatsby route. Well done. Here's Tim Riley. Elsewhere in the financial news, Citigroup agreed today to purchase Wachovia's banking operations for $2.1 in a deal arranged by a federal regulator marking the uh, Charlotte, we're Charlotte, North Carolina-based bank, the first casualty of the widening global financial crisis. This deal greatly expands Citigroup's retail franchise, giving it a total of more than 4,300 U.S. branches. So they're going to be like the clear channel of banking. And uh, $600 billion in deposits. So that's that. Nothing else has been sold in the last few minutes. No, no, but you know. So if your bank hasn't been sold yet today, well, there's still a few more hours to go. I will say that. Uh, how shall I put this? I will say that I was uh, paying something with a check this weekend. Uh-huh. Uh, here's here's all I'm gonna say. I was paying something with a check this weekend, and I wrote the check. And I don't use paper checks most of the time. Usually, it's you know, on a debit card or you know online or whatever. I was paying something with a check yesterday, and I wrote out the check, and I handed it to the person, and the person looked at the check, they looked at the bank on which the check is drawn, and they did the most obvious and prolonged double take, and I could tell that they were weighing in their heads whether to ask me, is this check going to work? I mean, is this, are, should you, you want to wait? Maybe give, give cash? I'd like, ca cash is always good. I just, and then they, they looked back, they looked back at the name of the bank, and they looked at me again, and I could tell that they were deciding in their head whether to bring up the bank issue, and then they just took the check and left. That being said, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. I don't know. Here's Tim Riley. So we have all kinds of things here because she's becoming such a, well, a popular figure. It's time for a Palin watch. All right, ladies and gentlemen, here is your inaugural Palin watch uh, for Monday on the Rick Emerson radio program. Now, I could see this working. If I took that little instrumental, uh, instrumental break there, and I sort of... You need to do something with the audio for I'm a Hockey Mom from Alaska. Totally. Create some little bridges there where we can drop in her... What is that thing she said to Katie Couric? The, uh, I don't have any examples, but I'll find some and I'll get back at you. All right, here's your Palin watch for uh, Monday. Part one of several. Soon after Sarah Palin was elected mayor of the foothill town of Wasilla, Alaska, she startled a local music teacher by insisting in casual conversation that men and dinosaurs coexisted on Earth, created 6,000 years ago, about uh, 65 million years after scientists say dinosaurs became extinct. After conducting a college band and watching Palin deliver a commencement address to a small group of homeschool students <laughs> in 1997, while still a resident, uh, Philip Munger said he asked the young mayor about her religious beliefs. Palin told him that dinosaurs and humans walked the earth at the same time. When he asked about her, uh, her about prehistoric fossils and uh, tracks dating back millions of years, Palin said she had seen pictures of human footprints beside the tracks. Oh, my God. The idea of a young earth... 
that God created the earth about 6,000 years ago and dinosaurs and humans coexisted early on as a popular strain of creationist. And, you know, wouldn't you love to see somebody just put that question to her directly? Because... Who knows? Maybe she'll say maybe she'll say that that is a misinterpretation of what she said. It's a a drastic and inaccurate revision of the statement. I I can't say that she would actually go on camera and say that. But the great thing about it is she would have only two choices. She would either have to cling to this insanity that the Earth is six thousand years old, or or she wouldn't. Which of course would alienate all those nutcase, uh, you know, Pentecostals that are supporting her, mm-hmm. uh, because you know all the James Dobson folks of the world, you know, they all believe that you know the Earth was created and, you know, whatever. How how many hours would that be? 186 hours or whatever. So I mean, they, they, you know, they all sort of cling to that uh, and they distrust that. Uh, what do you call it? Science and facts and thinking and stuff. So I would like to see her put in the position of being forced to answer that. Here's Tim Riley. Part two. A great YouTube video has surfaced showing Sarah Palin being blessed in her hometown church three years ago by a Kenyan pastor who prayed for protection from witchcraft as she prepared to seek higher office. The video shows Palin standing before Bishop Thomas Muthi in the pulpit of the Wasilla Assembly of God Church, holding her hands open as he asked Jesus Christ to keep her safe from every form of witchcraft. Come on, talk to God about this woman. We declare, save her from Satan. Um... that's what Muthi said as two attendants placed her hands on Palin's shoulders. Make her way, my God. Bring finances her way, even for the campaign of the name of Jesus. Use her to turn this uh, nation the other way around. Palin formally announced her bid for government a few months later, October 2005. A spokesperson for the McCain campaign declined to comment. A person who answered the phone at the Wasilla Church confirmed the video was taken from March 2005, but declared for the comment. I got like three things to say about this. One, what must other countries think of us? I don't mean to seem like we're always picking on Sarah Palin, but come on. Uh, I mean, this is the best America has to offer. That's what I mean. I mean, well, uh, 280 million people. She's the best person they could possibly find to be the vice president. I'm not saying Joe Biden's like the smartest guy in the history of whatever, but I mean, he seems to be able to speak somewhat coherently every now and again. It doesn't say things about humans living with dinosaurs in a cave somewhere and riding around like Holly and Will. So secondly, wait, no, I'm still back on the first thing. First, so not only do we claim apparently that she's the best we can do, but I mean, the idea that we have someone who is running for the vice presidency of the United States, which is really just sort of a back, a back-ass way of running for the presidency of the United States, because, you know, who knows? God forbid something happens to John McCain, or maybe McCain doesn't run again, or she tries to run for president. And there's a video of her being inoculated against witchcraft. I mean, I can't... I know that there's a lot of, you know, primitive cultures in this world, but I can't imagine what other countries are thinking right now when they read that news story. I mean, it just—it's just like so it's insane. Embarrassing. It is—it's it's completely embarrassing. It's not embarrassing to like close to fifty percent of the population. Well, secondly, they that think was she's a bright woman. Secondly, unfortunately, let's not pretend. By the way, though, let's just in the interest of fairness, let's not pretend that just witchcraft nuttery is confined to the Republicans. Because yesterday, yesterday, I was coming back from the mall, and Laura and I were behind a Ford that it was driven by some, uh, just some fat cretinous, undoubtedly stinking woman, and the back of the car was covered with you know witchcraft bumper stickers. And it was, you know, the, the the sticker that jumped out at me off the back of her car, and it was a purple Ford Focus. Don't get me wrong. Uh, no, it wasn't a Focus. It was an Escort. I take it back. It was an Escort. Oh my gosh. And by the way, Ford Focus, got one, love it. Ford Escort, drove one for a long time. So I have no problem with Ford Escorts. All you got to do is kick it and it crumbles. It was, it was metal flake purple, first of all. Driving a metal flake purple anything 
really, unless you were prominently featured in the movie American Pimp, driving a metal flake purple anything makes you look like a functional retard. So we just have to say that that's true. But it was, you know, like the chunky, stupid woman with her crystal hanging from the rearview mirror, and the bumper sticker right above the license plate said, said, yes, I'm a witch, deal with it. And then the rest of them were all like, you know, Wicca this, and you know, pantheism that, and so forth, and... I have to say, look, I'm a big bleeding heart, but there's something fundamentally stupid about people who use the phrase witch as though it's not a ridiculous word. No one says they're a goblin. No one says, no, 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 I practice goblinism with all my girlfriends at night. Come by our temple. There's really nobody. That's that's just embarrassing. Stop it. So anyway, so there's the second thing. So there's, uh, you know, so that particular brand of stupidity is rife on both sides of the aisle, and we all know that's true. Um I mean, I, I was making this whole little flowchart in my head the other day, actually. This is, a, this is sort of an idea for a failed blog posting. It was a blog posting I was going to write that I never did. But I was trying to do like a blank is to the Republican Party as blank is to Democrats. Or, you know, blank is to conservatives as blank is to liberals. And the first thing, I, the first thing that came out of my head was sort of creationism is to conservatives as astrology is to liberals. And that's, that's like I never got any further. Like I only got the first one done and then I was, you know, and that was it. But um, third point. Does this mean that she is inoculated against witchcraft? In other words, could we have witches come in and pray for something bad to happen to her and it would keep her safe? I mean, she would be safe. She'd be she'd be immune. How did she have said inoculation? Wasn't there some guy who, like, jumped around and, yeah. I don't know, shook a bag full of bones or something? <laughs> I don't know. A preacher man. Where was, what, from what religion, Tim? That was a Seventh-day Adventurist or whatever they are. Seventh-day Adventurist. <laughs> there ought to be a Disney pass called the Seventh-day Adventurists. Uh, sort of like an e-ticket, but it lasts you for the whole week. So, I mean, does that mean, theoretically speaking, that if a coven or coven of witches was to pray against, not that I would encourage them to do this, or do I even need it? That's another question. You know, when you're, when you're on a public, you know, when you're on the airwaves, and it is, it, 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 this thing, sort of thing is especially um, frowned upon. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you, you know, obviously you're never supposed to, and we would not, you're never supposed to talk about any physical misfortune, or, you know, violence or anything like that as regards any public official. We would never do those things. We, we wish all of our uh, elected officials in this country a long life and the best of health. We don't advocate or promote or condone or endorse or encourage any such talk. But, you know, you know you, people always say you can't joke about harm coming to any elected official because then the Secret Service comes to talk to you and so forth. But, but what about witchcraft? I mean, do you suppose, would it be illegal to have a coven of witches come and pray against Sarah Palin? I suppose. Not. I mean, obviously, you know, one could never go on the air and advocate violence against anybody. That's illegal, and we would never do that, and it's immoral and so forth. But what if we were to have some voodoo priest come on and do like a little voodoo spell against an elected official? Is that illegal? It'd be fun. What if CBS? I'm going to ask the CBS legal department about this today, just you know, like to amuse myself and nothing, just to see the CBS legal department have to answer a question about voodoo. CBS voodoo. Sarah Palin. Did you know I would like to see how well uh, the protection spell holds up? Mm-hmm. All right. Is that the end of the Palin Watch? Oh, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Apparently, after the much talked about interview with CBS News anchor Katie Couric, opened up the show with SNL regular Amy Pooler as Couric, and uh, then they had Tina Fey back on again. They were pitching questions about foreign policy, asking for examples of leadership abilities of GOP presidential candidate John McCain. Katie, I'd like to use one of my lifelines. <laughs> I'm sorry. I want to phone a friend. You don't have any lifeline. Well, in that case, I'm just gonna have to get back to ya. <laughs> so Sarah Palin's dad, Chuck, 
Chuck. Is asked his response to those who suggest his daughter isn't ready for the second most important job in the country. She's ready to do anything she wants to be. And she's, she perseveres. She, tries, she works so hard. She learns so fast. Yeah, she, I, I don't worry about that at all. That's what I'll tell them, yeah. She's ready to do anything she, she wants to be. She works so hard. <laughs> oh, Lord. And then uh, Sarah Palin's mother, Sally, uh, seconds that motion. She's got that ability to relate to people. She's diplomatic. She can get her point across. Look. Then Sarah Palin's specs <laughs> are causing a nationwide craze. They can't keep enough of them in stock. Let me see if I can find it. Oh, here it is. Here we go. It was amazing. We, I swear the next day I have at least two to three people coming in, and if they're looking at glasses, they will, you know, do you have the Sarah Palin glasses? So every day I will get a couple of people asking about it. Imagine how sad your life must be that you're going out of your way to go find glasses that make you look more like Sarah Palin. Sarah Palin glasses. (laughs) Jesus, God. All right. Um, she's ready to do anything she wants to do. And she's, she perseveres. She, tries, she works so hard. Look, don't get me wrong. My parents are hicks. Let's have no illusion about that. My whole family is just filled with rubes and drug dealers. I have no, there's, there's no, no changing that fact. I'm not running for vice president, though. You know why? Because I'm not. Because I'm not all that bright, Tim. Uh, and Did I don't you work all hard. I can. She can do anything she wants to be. She works all hard and so forth. Jesus, God Almighty. Uh, Let's get some Sarah Palin calls inside this Palin watch. Hi, you're on the Rick Emerson Show. Hello. Hi, is it me? Yes, it is. Hello, sir. I just had a thought. Uh, Since Sarah Palin's uh, pastor inoculated her against witchcraft and all that, and prayed that she'd have success in her career, and it seems to have worked, could we have this guy work on the Federal Reserve System and maybe the banks? (laughs) Really? Well, I mean, doesn't it seem like he could, at this point, almost certainly not do a worse job than has been done this whole time? I mean, I do get. I, you know, what we should do at some point. They ought to. There ought to be some web page where, in the one, like, you know, you get like uh, the guys from the Federal Reserve, and then in the other room, you just get a monkey, and the monkey just goes through and just, you know, hits buttons randomly on the keyboard to tell you what to do with the economy. We'll just see, you know, kind of who puts it together better. This is the better batting average. Could you? Uh, could you uh, teach the monkey to spin the wheel of fortune? That would work, too. All right. Thank you, sir. You bet. All Bye-bye. Right. Hi, you're on the Rick Emerson Show. Hello. Uh, hi. First, first, I'd like to say, uh, you're asking whether her her spell or her shield would hold against the voodoo. Yes. Uh, that, that depends on whether or not she makes her saving throw. Uh, well done. Thank you. I, I'm sorry. I'm D&D nerd. Also about the witch thing, going yeah. around saying you're a witch. The only time you can do that is if you're in the forest throwing a koosh ball at somebody else and saying, like, shoot my fireball. <laughs> So if you so really outside of the LARPing community, there's no acceptable use for the word witch. There's there's really not. All right. Okay. Thank you. All right. There you go. Uh, And it's always just the most hideous looking women, and we all know that that's true. Anybody you know that calls herself a witch and like isn't like isn't doing it on October 31st. Uh, Is that the end of the Palin Watch, or is there still more? I'm looking. Well, that's it for now. All right. There's the end of today's Palin Watch for now on the Rick Emerson Radio Program. Wait, let's see if I can do this on the fly here. No, I don't have any 
I was looking for a place to do that. Okay, no. Okay, what we should do is start with the instrumental at the beginning when it has that. Okay, so this is 1.9 over here. All right. All right. You ready? Yeah. So they go through this twice, this progression? All right. I'm a hockey mom from Alaska. Okay, there you go. There's something there. There's potential. She's She's ready to do anything she wants to be. (laughs) She perseveres. She she works so hard. That's wonderful. The horse is on the other foot now. Here's Tim Riley at the Ministry of Truth. Well, it's still not too late for Barack Obama to replace Joe Biden with Tanya Harding. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. What's the difference? We should push for that right now. God damn. I, I read the, this weekend, what's it, I think her name is um, Catherine Johnson, I think her name was, but she's a, she writes for the National Review, she's a conservative columnist, and she'd written this article when Sarah Palin first came out of the Republican convention, and everybody thought she was zinky, and she penned this long piece about how Sarah Palin is the second coming, and this is what we've been waiting for, and this is the opportunity, uh, you know, to embrace a strong female leader, and over the weekend, she actually wrote this long article where she said, I'm sorry, I don't know what I was thinking, I take it all back, and then she ended it with just this absolute plea for Sarah Palin to drop off the ticket so the Republicans maintain some chance to win. By the way, I'm still waiting for Camille Paglia uh, to issue a similar retraction. I'm going to be holding my breath for that or anything. Here's Tim Riley. Heather Locklear was arrested for driving under the influence of controlled substance in Montecito over the weekend. According to Lieutenant Dane Lobb of the CHP in Santa Barbara, citizen noticed a Locklear driving erratically in the parking lot, revving her car's engine and attempting to run over a pair of sunglasses. Lobb said the former Melrose Place star drove right out into the street. She, uh, for an unknown reason, stopped her car in the middle of the traffic lane and, and got out of her vehicle to smoke a cigarette. <laughs> of course she did. By the way, it, it, it is sort of indicative of how much news is happening today and the level to which today has just uh, become unpredictable. That This didn't even really count as a big story to me this morning, except for this. When you look at Heather Locklear's mugshot there, she got yeah. huge eyes. she got, like, big Japanimation eyes. She looks really pretty. She does look... I mean, really? she looks... Die or she looks way better than I thought she was going to because you know she's uh, not a not a not a spring chicken anymore. And also you, you think drunk driving, everybody flashes back to that Nick Nolte picture. She looks good though, but her eyes are just huge. She's got like big ass like Sailor Moon eyes going on there. Uh, hi, you're on the Rick Emerson radio program. Hello. Hi, Rick. What's up? Uh, I had a really surreal weekend. I want to see if you can help me with tell me whether I was hallucinating or not. Yes, sir. Well, on, it all started on Saturday night. I saw Richie. Uh, at the Roseland at a mixed martial arts fight. And then about 12 hours later, I could have either been drunk or sleeping, but sleepwalking, but I could have sworn I saw you on TV with a friend of mine. Well, first of all, you, you were probably almost certainly drunk. Well, that's right. All right. Um, uh, well, that's, uh, how do I put this? I, um, I don't think I'm allowed to talk about that. You, sir, could uh, talk so you're about You're saying that. that you saw, that you saw Rick on, like, on television? On the, TV box. Yeah. <laughs> on, on the talking box? <laughs> on the magic picture. On the magic picture square on the wall. Yeah, and then sitting next to him, I could have sworn it was a friend of mine. I'd known, you know, since I was in junior high. So who's it's really your, bizarre. Who's your friend? It's very surreal. Uh, Isaac. Oh, Isaac from Jackpot Records? Yeah. Well, I, uh... Um, you know, I seem to... One of my friends actually kind of heard something similar to that, too. I think they were watching the CW at, like, 6, six o'clock, 6.30 in the morning yeah, on Sunday. Yeah, I certainly don't know anything about that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I was just wondering if... I want to see it replayed, because I missed... You know. By I'm the sure way, if you look for it on the internet somewhere, you could be able to find it. And this uh-huh. should, of course, at no point be taken as constituted proof that you were not, in fact, drunk or hallucinating, because that might have been the case as well. Beautiful, great. All right, thank you. Well, can I ask? Can I say one more thing? Yes, sir. Um, 
You asked somebody what movie best describes your show. Yes, sir. And I thought of a really good movie, and instead of just telling you, I could play a clip. Okay. Is this clean? Uh, yes. I don't like that pause. There was a little hesitation there. I had there. to think, but no, it is. All right, so you are going to play a clip from a movie that you believe best represents the nature of this radio program. Correct. All right, go ahead. I want rustlers, cutthroats, murderers, bounty hunters, desperados, mugs, thugs, thugs, nitwits, hatwits, dimwits, vipers. I kind of lost me with the... <sighs> that was really? kind of surreal. I kind of expected it to go in that direction. Yeah, though. well, that was, and I thought he <laughs> might have been. From? Well, it's from Blazing Saddles. Oh. It's from Blazing Saddles, and as soon as I heard it's the. It's kind of memorable. As soon as I heard the first one, I thought, all right, is he playing the edited for TV version? Yeah, no, as soon as, as, soon as I heard I that, I thought. Like, is Rick and Lily go by? Well, you know, we try to, we try to be a program that sometimes we forget that we're broadcasting <laughs> over the airwaves. I sort of looked down at my at my dump button when that one came out, and I thought, did I just? And then I ended up. I was kind of trying to, I'm like, that couldn't be what I. Thought oh no, it, no, I dumped it. I did end up dumping that, but there was a long there was a long moment where I didn't dump it because I was just looking at the phone, going, really? And then he, and then he just let it continue. So we're going to take a break now. Thanks so much. Here's the thing. From now on, A, when you're going to call up and say that something is clean for the air. Please don't lie. Well, don't lie, or maybe just do this. I mean, I don't mean to be out in left field with these suggestions, but you could perhaps listen to it beforehand. I don't want to, you know, go out on a limb and really overtax everybody. You're crazy talking, Rick. You're crazy Jesus. talking. And also, from now on, when I ask a guy something's clean and he hesitates before saying yes, we're going to take that as a no. Jesus. All right. <sighs> Children is what they are. All right. Back after this with more of Tim Riley at the Ministry of Truth. Later on, without the Cena radio correspondent, James Roop, Top 5, Geek Watch, Penis Watch, Britney Watch. Uh, more about the financial crisis. We'll talk about this coming Thursday's debate. All of that. Stay there. It's the Rick Emerson radio program. The loudest thing I've ever heard. Jeez, that was deafening. Why, hello. It's the Rick Emerson Radio Program, an excursion into deafness. It's 503-733-2970. 503-733-2970. Still to come. Uh, fantastic. Britney Watch, Penis Watch, Geek Watch coming up later on. Cena Radio correspondent Jim Roop. Uh, the 2 o'clock hour, Bobby Roberts from uh, Rock 101 KUFO will do his top five rock slash pop songs that accompany the closing credits of a film. We'll get your calls here in a moment. Tim Riley returns at the Ministry of Truth. Uh, real quick, let me read this. Uh, you probably heard about this by now. Scarlett Johansson marries Dane Cook. I'm sorry. Ryan Reynolds. Scarlett Johansson and Ryan Reynolds tied the knot in an under-the-radar ceremony at Wilderness Retreat near Vancouver, British Columbia, I guess over the weekend. A handful of friends and family attended, including the actress's mother and father. The couple, she's 23, he's 31, got engaged in May after dating for one year. Uh, Johansson said, we're enjoying our time last month, according to the Associated Press. We're just recently, very recently engaged, so you know we're taking it easy, no big plan yet, blah, 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 blah. So... There you go. I'm looking at him now. First of all, here's the he thing about... really good looking. 
but but in a really uninteresting way. To me, here's what Ryan Reynolds looks like. And when I said Dane Cook, he kind of looks like a hybrid of Dane Cook and Jason Lee. Like if you were to have sort of a more conventionally attractive Jason Lee, but then to like go through and sort of, I don't know, uh, hermetically seal out all of his personality, he would be Ryan Reynolds. I mean, I mean, God, God love him at all, but I mean, well, whatever. Anyway, so there you go. I mean, it's just going to be a matter of time. For girls and for boys. I don't think you realize how hot women find Ryan Reynolds. I know. He's an attractive man. I just find him, there's nothing interesting about him to me. You know, he, he's not attracted to me in any sort of... I think he's really funny, and that's like, and that comes really? with the fact that he's that he's good looking. He won you over in Van Wilder. <laughs> I, I find him attractive. All right, no, and he also had a guest spot in uh, My Boys too. He is no, he is an attractive man in a sort of smirky kind of way, but I, I I guess he's sort of conventionally attractive. He seems very bland to me in his sort of. You know what he looks like? Here's another guy. He looks like a more attractive version of, um, oh God, who was that guy? Tobin, what's his name? Who was the guy that was hooked up with Sandra Bernhardt for the longest time? And he was in Love Potion number nine with Sandra Bernhardt. And now he's on damages on the FX. Or are you talking about the guy who's engaged to uh, Jennifer Aniston? No. Tate Donovan? Tate Donovan. Why was it Tobin? Yeah, Tate Donovan. I don't know um, I remember that. Tate Donovan is sort of a, like a less attractive version of Ryan Reynolds. Or Ryan Reynolds. Tate Donovan is, a, is so unattractive. Yeah, but see, he did. But he, if Tate Donovan was a real guy, like just like a normal citizen, he would be portrayed in the movie by Ryan Reynolds. Ditto Jason Lee. So. All right, there's that. Uh... Oh, speaking of guys who are sort of unconventionally attractive, um, let's see, we'll get, let me, uh, we got a phone call here, let me read this, then we'll have more from Tim Riley. If you're just joining us, World Hell Handbasket. Uh, we have this now from, uh, let's see, this is from readers at gay.com. Uh, Dirty Jobs host, this really surprised me, by the way. Dirty Jobs host, Deadliest Catch narrator, and former opera singer Mike Rowe. Who watches Dirty Jobs? Anyone? Dirty Jobs. He watched Dirty Jobs. It's on the. He was obsessed with Micro. Uh, I think it's on the Discovery Channel. It's another one of those shows that I forget because I always like I always blend together the Discovery Channel, the Travel Channel, and the Food Network. They all sort of blur together in my head. The Discovery Channel has this show called Dirty Jobs, and it is sort of like Anthony Bourdain, except instead of going to investigate food or restaurants or culture, Mike Rowe just goes and he spends a day doing uh, some job that is either backbreaking or sort of interesting or disgusting. Like he's done, you know, like he's worked in a steel mill for a day. He's been an ostrich farmer for a day. He's uh, been a guy. He's been a guy who cle- he's gone to uh, um, to clean out sewers for a day. He how do I put this? He had an episode where he went to aid in the obtaining of genetic material from farm animals for artificial insemination. Yeah. One must obtain that genetic material somehow. And so he did that. But every episode, he picks either one job or a couple jobs that are either interesting or disgusting, and he goes and he spends a whole day doing them, and then he kind of gives this recap. Um, and then he narrates Deadliest Catch. Uh, readers at Gay.com have voted him the number one dude they'd like to cheat on their boyfriends slash husbands with. Uh, by the way, Anderson Cooper, who I guess at one point was number one, came in third place behind Fast and Furious uh, actor Paul Walker. Uh, let's see. Um Michael Phelps had 2% of the vote. Uh, let's see. So here we have the whole... Um, so the, the list of candidates was Anderson Cooper, Andy Roddick, Brad Pitt, Channing Tatum, Channing Tatum, Gerard Butler, Hugh Jackman, uh, Justin Timberlake, Mario Lopez. Mario Lopez, who even now gets 7% of the vote. Mm. Matthew McConaughey, Mike Rowe, Neil Patrick Harris coming in strong. Uh, let's see. What else do we have? Patrick Dempsey, Paul Walker, Ryan Reynolds. See? 
And Ryan Reynolds got 5%. He beat Neil Patrick Harris and Vin Diesel uh, with 3%. There you go. By the way, I'm going to read the only comment on this article. This is from uh, Gay.com. The only the only uh, comment that showed up when I printed this out was Mike. This is from Schlee89, who says, Mike Rowe is hot as hell. He's right out of a Treasure Island porn film. He should make that his new career. All right, there you go. Uh, let's get this phone call, then we'll continue with Tim Riley. Hi, you're on the Rick Emerson Show. Hello. Good afternoon. What's up? Uh, two things. Uh, number one, did you see the picture of McCain in the paper today, page six? On uh, the Oregonian? Yes, sir. No, of course. No one did. No one did. Oh, you got to see that one. Uh, let's see. Page six, Oregonian McCain. Hold on a second. Is that creepy? Wait, one second here. Oh, wow. That's a completely <laughs> creepy photo. <laughs> I thought you'd like that one. The other thing was, I watched the debate analysis the other day, and I was flipping between MSNBC and CNN. And for whatever reason, I turned over to Fox. Uh-huh. And they had a little text poll that you could that everybody could text in. And the other week, a couple weeks ago, you were saying how Fox had more independents than Republicans who watched it, and there was a lot of Democrats, some sort of poll that said that. Eighty-two uh, percent sure. of the people on Fox said that McCain won the debate. Oh, no, here's a great little moment from uh, my weekend. So the debate happened on Friday, and Lara, she has this whole sense of, of uh, child obligation to her parents that she has to call them and talk to them once a week, even though she doesn't like it. Right. She doesn't like it, doesn't enjoy it. She ends, uh, I mean, her dad is great, she and her dad talk, but she will talk to her mom, and then she always ends the call uh, sort of angry and resentful and bitter, and then the next Sunday it's like the same jazz all over again. Pick up, what are you doing? Calling my mom. You know, sweetie, you're a grown woman in your 30s. You don't have to talk to your mom if you don't want to. Well, I feel like I'm supposed to. And then fast forward like 30 minutes later, and she's screaming at her mother about politics over the phone. She hangs up and immediately goes to the fridge at like 10 a.m., and it, it you know, opens a beer. So... This last weekend, she's talking to her parents about the debate, and her dad is her dad is conservative, but in a sweet sort of misguided kind of way, because he said, "Well, now you know, Laura, I was watching um, Fox News, and you know, 82 percent of people feel McCain won the debate." And, yeah. and Laura says to him, she kind of puts on the patient as though you know if you're speaking to a small child voice, and she says, "Well, that's true, Dad, but." You know, that um, Fox does have a very conservative viewing base, which might explain that. And there's this long pause, and her dad goes, oh, I hadn't thought about that. That's a good point. And then, you know, which is just, you know, it's sort of sort of charming. So. Yeah, that's pretty good. All right, All right good thank you. Show. All right, there you go. Now, uh, the answer to did you see something in the Oregon, unless it's Peter Carlin's column, the answer is no. We never saw anything in the Oregonian this morning or any other morning ever going forward. I'm going to pass this around the room. Look at this picture of John McCain. Page six in the Oregonian. Oh, no. <laughs> That's kind of creepy, isn't it? That is more than a little creepy. Yeah. Hey, Johnny, I'm going to eat your brains. Oh, yeah. bad. That's like the thumbs up he gives you as they're foreclosing on your house and your family's been taken away to some sort of, like, you know, re-education he camp. He looks like he has jaw surgery. He looks like one of those old cartoons, like, with the really swollen jaw with, like, the... The bandage tied Totally, the totally. Top, like, I could see that. Right on the top. And he's got the one eye all squinted down, which isn't going to help those rumors that he had a stroke, by the way. Join Uncle John for cartoons this afternoon. <laughs> it's kind of strange that it's always the left side that he's squinting. Yes, it left is. Left brain, light, right uh -huh. brain. Right, here's Tim Riley. The Federal Reserve will pump an additional $630 billion into the global financial system. 
Did he just say that? Yes. From where? Where is that money coming from? The Federal Reserve will pump an additional $630 billion into the global financial system, flooding banks with cash to alleviate the greatest banking crisis since the Great Depression. Wait. I can't believe I'm reading this stuff. But it's so, true. When you say they're going to flood the banks with cash. Yes. First of all, that is not comforting at all. I don't like the word flood. It's like it comes out of a, a, a fire plug in the street. Exactly. Just... Everybody get ready. And also, when they say they're going to be flooding the banks with cash, I don't like the word flood in relation to any sort of a rescue effort because it sounds like they don't really know what they're doing, and so they're just going to open the big money spigots as wide as they possibly can and hope that it somehow fixes things. Mm-hmm. Also, from where is this money coming? Uh, the Feds are increasing its existing currency swaps with foreign central banks by $330 billion to $620 billion to make more dollars available worldwide. Does this just mean that we're borrowing more money? I don't know. Oh, printing it. Okay. Uh, who thinks that... I'm going to go around the room right now. Who thinks this is a good idea? To get somebody who understands economics on the on the show. And I don't mean somebody who just... You know, watches a lot of Jim Cramer. Kind of like the guy that we had on about the traffic. Exactly. Someone with a degree in economics who can come sit in the studio and answer very simple, basic questions from us and from everybody about this. Because there was this moment this morning when I was sort of like, well, you know, we talked a lot about that financial crisis. Good thing that's in the rearview mirror. I'm glad we're past that. Maybe we won't. And then everything just went down the flood. I don't even want to tell you what the stock market's doing right now. Oh, so, I know. It's, uh, it's, it's probably going to, uh, well, I'm not going to say anything. I mean, I hate It'll to... It'll make people feel worse, really. I, I, I hate to be this guy, but you almost have to become Scarlett O'Hara at this point about the, about the, the stock market. Just kind of, well, I'm not going to pay that. No, never mind. Because, what? I mean, really, what are you going to do about it? I mean, it's not like worrying about the stock market ever really changed it. But, even, but at this point... At this point, going and worrying about the state of your money that might be invested somewhere is just asking for some sort of a, an embolism or a stroke or something. So, anyway, um, so uh, do you think? What do you think about that? Getting somebody here on the show who can speak to these economic questions in a very simple, basic way and explain it—that would be fantastic. Let's find somebody now. Because I'd like to know where the Federal Reserve is getting six hundred billion dollars to quote flood the banks with. Mm-hmm. The whole thing just freaks me out. Here's Tim Riley at the Ministry of Truth. Maybe we should ask Richie. He must know a lot of people with money. Richie, do you know anybody with a degree in economics? Uh, I think so. All right, look into that if you would. All right, here's Tim Riley. Meanwhile, it's time to forget your problems and uh, hear about hundreds of people gathering for a massive pillow fight in in, uh, downtown Grand Rapids. The organizer of the event... Bob Bliss is stunned by the turnout. This started with me inviting about 100 people to the event on Facebook. It was just originally just for like a few friends, and then it really exploded. Despite big bank failures and billion-dollar bailouts, <laughs> real estate sales in Orange County are up 29% over the past year. I think the projections are probably still another 12 months away from a lot of these properties that are going to start coming back. And I don't think any federal government bailout is going to improve any, any of the marketplace. By the, it's, it's just a Band-Aid. It's not going to fix the problem. By the way, anybody looking for further comparisons between this country and the Roman Empire can go back to the last story where, in the midst of the worst financial crisis we've ever had, there is a man, in fact, organizing the world's largest pillow fight. So, you know, just draw your own conclusions. Hi, you're on the Rick Emerson Show. Hello. Hey, Rick. What's up? Got a real simple economics lesson here for you. Uh, gold is, has a basis point right now at $920 an ounce. Mm-hmm. In 1929, when we were on the gold standard, a dollar was worth a one ounce of silver approximately, call it uh, $20 now. Okay. 
Am I? Uh, wait, is that the end of the lesson? Am I supposed to know what you just told me? Okay, I'm going to make it even simpler for you. Gold is worth $920 an ounce. If yes. we were on a gold standard, that would mean now that the dollar is worth one nine hundred and twentieth of an ounce of gold. Okay, that's not working. No. Okay. Um, Twenty minutes ago, the Dow was down six hundred and thirty-three <laughs> points. Yes. Yes, and uh, the, what the, what's happening in this call, sir? Well, what's happening is I don't mean to sound thick. Is the uh, hell handbasket world. Yeah. You, you hit it right on the head right there. That's all you need to know and no math involved. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. All Bye. Right. So basically just a big arrow pointing down. That's the end of the lesson. But lettering. you know, if you have nothing, you have thank nothing you. to worry about. Tim, when you got nothing, you got nothing to lose. That's right. As they say. Uh, well, you hear that a lot. People, this is a thing that say, well, you know, this all goes back to Richard Nixon taking us off the gold standard. And I get the feeling that about 80% of the people who make that remark have no idea what they're talking about. Because I don't even really know what that means. And the please don't call to explain the gold standard. It's not going to make any sense. You're just going to throw that at my brain, and it's going to bounce right off and fall on the floor and you know, vaporize. So there's going to be no understanding of that by me. So don't feel like you have to call and explain the gold standard business to me. The whole idea that we were ever on a gold standard just seems really strange in a way, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, that just seems odd that at some point, like, the government would only print as much money as there was gold. It seems strangely arbitrary. It's like saying that we were somehow going to be on, like, a begonia standard. We are not going to make any more dollars than there are begonias in this flower bed at the White House. I mean, it didn't really make any sense. Like, like who, who cares that we have gold in a vault somewhere? I mean, it doesn't... And again, please don't feel like you have to explain that to me right now because it will almost certainly not work. It just seems like a seems like a strangely strangely anachronistic thing for us to have ever done. Hi, you're on the Rick Emerson show. Hello. Hey, Rick. What's up? Hey, uh, looking at all this financial crisis, it's kind of like looking at that movie Gremlins 2, where everyone is having pandemonium in that office building. Yes, in the offices of Clamp Industries. Yes, and then you can see that one. Um, Gremlin wearing his shirt and tie, telling investors to buy, invest in shotguns and canned goods. Oh, see, man, what a great movie that is. Gremlins 2 is one of the all-time great films. Don't get me wrong. I love Gremlins. It's classic. Uh, Phoebe Cates, Zach Mulligan, I think his name is, or whatever. Um, Gremlins 2 is a much overlooked, underrated, underappreciated film. It, it is. I remember seeing Gremlins 2 in the theater and realizing two things. One, this movie is classic. And two... This movie will never get the audience it really deserves. Here's another nifty little thing about Gremlins 2, by the way. Uh, you see it in the theater. There's that whole sequence where the film burns through or whatever because the Gremlin has cut the film. You see uh, you see it at home on DVD. And I don't know if they've actually changed it for DVD, but it, when you would see Gremlins 2 on VHS, it would go all wonky and wobbly and the tracking would all be off for a second. And then it was because a Gremlin had gotten into your VCR. They actually bothered to film a supplemental scene just for the home release, which is great. Kind of scary thinking that you got a gremlin in your VCR. I know. It's very unnerving, sir. All right. Thank you. And just you get points just for the Gremlins 2 reference. Oh, thanks. Great show ever. Thank you. Gremlins 2, here they grow again. Here's Tim Riley. Oh, did I tell you it's going to be 90 degrees today? Yes, it will mm-hmm. be. You know, if this were a Spike Lee film, though, it would be 107 degrees, and we'd be in New York uh, where the stock market was crashing, and then it would all end with open violence and guns. Which, you know, is still possible. I'm so. sure your ride home will be pleasant. I saw your car in the back parking lot. Yes. Emerson. Yes, you did. Enjoy that, AC. You know, you know, I'm going to enjoy my last few weeks here in this country before everything just completely goes up in a cinder. I'm just going to wallow. Doesn't matter. It'll take real barrels full of cash to buy a pencil on the street corner. Tim, Tim was making the best of. We were, we were just in the greatest moment in the hallway during the last break where 
I was going to use the restroom, and Tim and Chris Paddock from KUFO were standing in the hallway watching CNN, and CNN is showing the stock market, and it's just the huge number, like, minus 650, with, like, a huge arrow going down to the floor. Yeah, I think it was minus 705, the biggest drop ever in the middle of the day. And they were shaking their heads, and then Tim started wondering aloud where the looting would happen and hoping that uh, all of the pillaging would kind of take place downtown in my neighborhood and not find his way to the suburbs. Here's the thing about that, Tim. The looting is going to start in your neighborhood because that's where all the good stuff is. I mean, what is there to loot where Sarah lives? Nothing. I'm going to report it to the Homeowners Association and put an end to it right away. Write a strongly worded letter, Tim. I will. Write a letter condemning in the strongest possible language these acts of hooliganism. Try to try to find a mailbox that's not on fire. Oh, that's true. They got a straight shot, too, to your house on the max. They got a max go right to your house, kick in the door. It's all over. I'll be safe and sound and... In southeast Portland, because all of the criminals in my neighborhood will have fled to go to your neck of the woods to steal things. Really? I have a lapse of that'll shred your flesh. So, hey, by the way, so speaking of that, uh, I didn't mean to oversell this earlier, and I never really got a chance to reference it because we had barely gotten off the ground today. Oh, something that happened to you this weekend? Yeah, uh, we, had, we, we had barely begun today's program when uh, suddenly just the hot rails to hell became greased and this country started rocketing towards doom. At on KCMD Portland. Light speed on KCMD Portland. So we had, I mean, Jesus... Just in the first half hour of the show, we had we were talking about Paul Newman. We were talking about this financial deal being voted down. We were talking about the debate recap. We've got the Sarah Palin thing. I mean, it's just, I mean, we use this phrase a lot, but it is one of those days where there's crazy and chaos on the air. I mean, it just. We knew it. You can, yeah, you could just feel it out there. So this kind of got lost in the shop. It's not a huge deal, but speaking of lots of ops, uh, uh, so Laura and I did get a second dog over the weekend. What? Oh, wow. Yeah. So we got a, I was going to mention at the top of the show but we started talking about Paul Newman, and then this financial thing got voted down, and there was just no... What kind of dog did you get? Well, they claim he's the same mix as Max, although they also say that they don't really know. Uh, we got him... This is not a plug, uh, but uh, I'm just saying this because they have a good place. We got him a place called, um, called New Life, uh, the New Life Animal Shelter, and the deal is they take... Uh, typically, they take animals that Multnomah County won't take, because they're animals that have kind of been neglected or, you know, somebody put the boot to them or they found them, you know, starving at some street corner or whatever. So they take animals. Uh, it's a no-kill shelter. First of all. They stay there for as long as it takes. Okay. I mean, they'll stay there. I mean, they'll stay their whole lives if they have to. Mm. They, 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 they're a no-kill shelter. The animals are there until somebody adopts them. And, again, they take animals that Multnomah County won't take because they're hard to place for whatever reason. Uh, so we've been kind of looking off and on, like, you know, every few weeks we kind of look online or whatever. Uh, so there was this, uh, dog that we went in and they, they sort of are guessing that he's kind of the same mix as Max. But again, because he was just dropped off by some, you know, some redneck who's just, I don't want to take him, you know, and like kicked him out of the truck or whatever. Some guy who just abandoned them there. Um, they're not really sure. So anyway, blah, 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 there you go. New dog. And he's a puppy though. So we got the whole like house training jazz to go through, which is not like a whole, a whole lot of fun, especially as we're now heading into winter. So that's going to be really enjoyable standing outside for like 30 minutes, trying to get the animal to understand that he's supposed to go outside while I'm busy freezing my ears off. How old is the puppy? He's uh between like three or four months old, they think. So, um, so he's, a uh, we named him Philo. Philo. That's in Philo T. Farnsworth, inventor of the television. Uh, so is that with a P or an F? Well, P H I L O. That's what I thought. Yeah, which is which is sort of a great thing because on the one hand, because Philo Farnsworth is from Utah, he's from Provo, so it's you know it's a Provo thing. My wife is from Provo. It's Aaron Sorkin because Aaron Sorkin wrote the Farnsworth invention about about Philo Farnsworth life. It's also pop culture because 
Philo Farnsworth invented the television. Uh, you know, and, pl- and, it's, and plus, it's kind of cool because it's it sort of sounds like Fido, mm-hmm. and Philo is sort of a backhanded reference as well to Professor Farnsworth on Futurama. And more than any other dog, our new dog Philo looks like Fry's dog Seymour. So he looks at the first time I saw him, I'm like, that's Fry's dog from Futurama. Uh, anyway, so there you go. So uh, new. Oh my God, a three month old puppy. New dog at the Emerson yeah. household. Yeah, we actually had to hire um, a dog walker to come by because Max is good. Max can be left alone for the most part. Uh, and there's, I'll quit talking about dogs after this. But you know, Max can be left alone. But obviously, the, you know, the new dog can't. He's still like trying to get his act together. So we had to hire um, had to hire this woman to come by and, and take him out every day and whatnot. So I'm looking for I'm looking forward to seeing what this dog enjoys destroying. Here's Tim Riley. Oh, look at this picture I found of Bush. He looks like Roosevelt at Yalta. <laughs> wow. Throw a blanket over him. He's only got a few months left. He looks really old and out of it there. He looks older than his dad. He looks like that guy from Poltergeist 2 right mm-hmm. there. All right. Looks like he ought to be assembling people to live in an underground cavern during the apocalypse. Uh, hi, you're on the Rick Emerson radio program. Sir, madam, as the case may be. What's up? Hey, I cannot find any reference online or uh, at Ticketmasters to where and when and how and to get tickets for you and the Mythbusters. Uh, Mythbusters, behind the scenes, uh, an afternoon with the Mythbusters. Uh, that is going to be uh, at, uh, let's see, uh, let me make sure that I've got the, it's Ticketmaster.com. It's at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall. It is a week uh, from yesterday. In other words, this coming Sunday, October 5th, 2 p.m., Sunday, October 5th, and tickets available at Ticketmaster.com. You lie. I'm a Ticketmaster now. I cannot find it. Well, that. it might be sold out. Well, that would be wrong. Tickets were, yeah, uh, tickets at the PCPA box office or at Ticketmaster. However, as of last week, they were very close to selling out. Uh, and so my guess would be that it is sold out, sir. Uh, but you really, you should call the Schnitzer yourself or call Portland Center for the Performing Arts. You are the man. All right. We'll hope to see you there. Thank you, my friend. All Later right, days. Here's Tim Riley at the Ministry of Truth. Let's do this. Snuff Watch. All right. Here's uh, your Snuff Watch for Monday on the Rick Emerson Radio Program. Paul Newman died over the weekend. He was a star of films such as The Hustler, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, The Color of Money. He was 83, and he had a long battle with cancer. Now, let's see. I have a whole bunch of people here to talk about uh, Paul Newman. Uh, first, uh, Paul Newman himself shared what he enjoyed most about being an actor. I have in my day been very lucky. I've had some setbacks, but by and large, I've been a very lucky fella. And I think if you acknowledge luck, in your life, uh, hand in hand with the acknowledgement comes the acknowledgement of brutal luck in the lives of other people. And to not respond to that in some way seems inhuman. You know, the other thing about uh, Paul Newman I was thinking about this weekend is he never, you know, he, nothing bad ever stuck to him. He never had, you know, much in the way of scandal. Uh, nobody ever had a bad word to say about him. I mean, you remember even like when Brando, when Brando died, man, people couldn't wait to put the boot in on that guy because apparently he was just an ass while he was oh, alive. Yeah. Uh, Paul Newman, though, he went through his whole life, sort of like George Clooney, actually. Uh, Paul Newman went through his whole life kind of impervious to everything. I mean, he's very Teflon in that way. And I'm not saying that anything, that there was anything to stick to him. He just, he kind of glided through his whole career with what seemed like a very effortless grace, even if it wasn't. And again, just like George Clooney, where you know he was never on the front page of the tabloids. It wasn't any sort of uh, controversy that attached itself to him. 
Uh, he was very, uh, he led his whole career with a great measure of dignity. Uh, during a 2000 interview, Numa was asked uh, why he was attracted to playing hustlers. I think a graceful hustle is about is as much fun as you can have. Maybe it's, it's because it's, it's intimately tied to practical jokes. They're, they're in the same family. It's fun. Now, you know, The Hustler's a great film, and even The Color of Money, which is, of course, not as good. Uh, Color of Money's still great. He was all, what did I just see him in the other day? Uh, a couple weeks ago, I watched The Verdict, which is the great David Mamet film starring Paul Newman. And Paul Newman, here's the other thing. Paul Newman excelled at playing a couple kinds of characters. One, uh, we were talking, I did, it was talking about the beginning of the show, about the Cool Hand Luke-style character, which is more or less, uh, the Cool Hand Luke character is, I mean, you can you can compare him to a lot of other uh, figures of film and literature like Randall McMurphy or whoever. But Cool Hand Luke, Lucas Jackson, is in a lot of ways like Butch Cassidy. That same sort of defiance in the face of certain defeat. There's that great sequence, a couple of great sequences in, in Butch. I mean, the whole movie is fantastic. But in, in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which is just just one of the best movies ever made. And I'm selling past the clothes on that, but a movie that is just... And, and I think Butch Cassidy is... Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is very much a guy film. There's no getting around that. But I... I know guys that that are just one shade away from bowing down and praying in front of an altar of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid every night because it is such a lesson in how to be a certain kind of man. And there are those great sequences. One was they're standing on the whatever the waterfall that they're looking at the river. They're looking at the river below, and they're talking about whether there's sharks or something down there. And he looks down in the fall will probably kill us, which is just so great. Just that great kind of laissez-faire sort of. In a devil-may-care approach to, to life. And there's also just that great final sequence where they're trapped and they go to do the shootout and it freezes and it goes to sepia tone. And, I mean, that's, you know, that's how those characters should have gone out. And, you know, it's how Paul Newman kind of presented himself on screen. There was another type of character that Paul Newman played very well. And that was the guy who was broken down or lost or or almost defeated, who didn't really have much left in his life, but who, as one person said uh, in, in an article I read this weekend, kind of kept the motor running just in case. He played a lot of guys who were this far away from being down-and-out losers forever, but they kind of kept going just in case something else came along. And he played that character in The Verdict. He played a variation on that character in a great movie, Slapshot, which is uh, in which also gave us the characters of the Hanson Brothers. Um, so, I mean, he was... Uh, it's just one of a kind. There's no getting around it. Jacqueline Bissett, who starred with Newman in the 1980 film When Time Ran Out, says she'll always remember the character for his sense of humor. Well, the thing that I retain is is this kind of boyish sense. He's, he's joking it. And um, he used to really go laughing at his own jokes before he'd get them out. I mean, he'd be cracking up before he'd get the whole joke out. So you were laughing with him. Actor-slash-presidential candidate Fred Thompson said he worked with Newman late in his career. He kind of took me under his wing and uh, and, and treated this nobody who, who he'd never met or I'm sure probably never never heard of back several years ago and, uh, and treated me very well. Larry King comments. This persona, he was a singular person in that racing, food, clothing, charity, camps, for underprivileged children. There's so many things to window one. You know what it was? I would talk about him. Variety. Have another cup of coffee and put it in your upper plate. Larry King liked Paul Newman. He's a, really a wonderful... Going on a limb. ...down-to-earth good person who was, a, by the way, also extraordinarily smart. 
So we uh, this weekend on Saturday night it was we uh, which is the, you know he died that morning or they announced it that morning and on Saturday night we went over to to Bobby to Fat Boy's house because they were doing a big party to what they were doing a West Side Story uh, commentary and that's one of Lara's favorite films and it's one of my favorite films and so we wanted to go over and, and watch that so it's a whole bunch of us in the in a room everybody just kind of getting blitzed and watching West Side Story which is great uh, and so we as as dorky as this sounds and it is dorky. On the way there, we stopped by a Safeway, and we just bought, like, the big armful of Newman's own cookies. We walked over and like, let us now eat to the memory of Paul Newman. And so we just, like, spent the entire night, everybody just uh, drinking microbrews and eating, like, big fistfuls of Newman. Which, and his cookies were fantastic. Uh, by the way... Yes, the big ones are the best. Uh, and let me just say this. Also, you know that typically I'm with the famous Amos, but I would say that Paul Newman, the Newman's own chocolate chip cookies are superior to the famous Amos cookies. And that's saying something. Because those famous Amos cookies, I mean, that's... Uh, I think know, they're dry. That's Nah, see, but I like dry. I really do. I don't like chewy cookies. I don't like soft cookies. I don't like those, like, oven batch or whatever the Keebler elves make or whatever. I guess elves don't really make it. You know what I mean? The... um. I, I, I like my cookies to be crisp. I'm a big fan of crispness. And the uh, Newman's Own cookies are always very crisp. They're a snap to them. They're uh, not elves anyway. I was outside of that factory once, and they were illegal aliens in a hollow tree. <laughs> Hi, you're on the Rick Emerson Show. Hello. Hey, I just want to add to the Paul Newman story that I haven't heard yet. That, yes. Uh, he was uh, one of the uh, very few who actually was married for 50 years to Joanne Woodward. Joanne, yeah, I mean, they had a long, long really, you know, and of course he struggled through his kid who I think overdosed or took his own life. or it, One of Newman's kids, I think he overdosed. Uh, so, I mean, he certainly had a lot of child. And people forget that early in his career he struggled to really to make himself seen and noticed. I mean, he was in, you know, films that he didn't, you know, where he didn't necessarily stand out and where he was miscast because they didn't quite know what to do with him at the time. And, you know, but as time went on, both he and directors figured out what kind of roles he excelled at. And and the thing is, he played, as I said, you know, he had some recurring themes and sort of facets that would appear over and over again in films, but you never felt like he was retreading himself. You never felt like he was just phoning in and recycling a previous character. He explored the same set of human strengths and frailties in a variety of different guises. So uh, he was one of a kind. No getting around that. All right. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. And those blue eyes of his, man. I mean, he had... I mean, those eyes look right through you. He had, like, those those Chuck Yeager right stuff eyes. Uh, hi, you're in the uh, Rick Emerson Show. Hello. Hello. Hello, it's you. Oh, hey. Hey. Hey, listen. Uh, I was uh, I was wondering uh, if you guys were going to get uh, Dennis Pitsenbarger on for the for. No, the, the answer other, to that is no. Other commentary. No, you know I, you know Dennis and I are friends. Uh, Dennis, I like Dennis. Dennis and I go back for a bit. He has a fine radio program here this weekend. Uh, it airs this uh, this weekend and every weekend nine to eleven. Uh, his his thoughts on Paul Newman are his own. They will not be voiced on this program. And Dennis, do not take this as a call, as an instinct to call in and say something bad about Paul Seriously, Newman. That, don't. That won't be happening. Oh no, I, I I was out years ago when Paul Newman first got into racing, and uh, a couple of buddies of mine and I were over by the pits, and we did a. We kind of did a uh, the Butch Cassidy thing on him. We go, hey, who are those guys? <laughs> and he uh, and he kind of looked up and smiled. And we didn't ask for his autograph or anything like Dennis did. But right. he seemed like a pretty friendly guy. No, you know, I mean, I mean, my impression of him was certainly different than than Dennis's. But uh, you know, he he seemed like uh, in show business he had a, he had a pretty good run. Well, you know, by all by all accounts, he was you know, obviously a great philanthropist and uh, you know a guy who really 
really managed to sort of keep it together and seem to be a pretty decent human being in an industry that often just strips the decency right out of you. So, all right, thank you, sir. Hey, take care. I remember last year we were working on the 48-hour film festival, and we were up at this guy Noah's house. His house was sort of the home base for that. And, you know, the 40-hour film festival, you know, they, you have to go from idea for a film to completed product in, in 48 hours. You have to make the whole thing. And so you pick some guy's house as a home base, and everybody sort of hunkers down there. And you, you, essentially, you stay up for two days. You don't sleep. And I remember being, and Noah's a, a huge film fanatic. I mean, he was a real, just a, just a freak for movies in, in the best possible sense. And we're all in his basement, and I think Nate Baker and I were there, and he, we were editing something, or we were rewriting something. And, and uh, Noah has a real thing for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And downstairs, directly like next to his sort of home theater system, and to the, he has a bar and he has a home theater system. And right between the two is this huge framed black and white photo and it's one of those it's one of those classic shots where it's Bush and Sundance leaning up against a wall and I think that Sundance is kind of looking the other way he's like looking off to the to the left and Butch it's that great thing where he's got whatever the holster with like the bullet belt but it's like at an angle you know what I mean where like the gun is weighing it down so he has that bullet belt that's sort of hanging down on one side because he's got that big gun in, in the holster and he's got his thumbs hooked into his jeans and he's looking right at the camera and I maybe it was the sleep deprivation I mean it might have been the fact that I was up for like 36 hours or something at that point but I just sat there and it, I would find myself just staring at that poster and just thinking to yourself like how can anybody be that cool I mean him and Redford too by the way I mean Redford is kind of the guy that sometimes gets left out of that equation I mean Redford is you know, of course a towering actor uh, and when paired with Paul Newman, and then you know, and then you you know, and then you look at you think of the Hustler or the Hustler, or the Sting too. I mean, the Sting is just a, maybe a film that I think gets overlooked a little bit now because it doesn't quite have the snap appeal that maybe Cool Hand Luke does or, or Butch and Sundance. Uh, but the Sting is an exceptional movie, and you know, just an intangible quality that guy had. Um, all right. Uh, well, do we have other Paul Newman stuff or? No, that's it. All right. There you go. There is your uh, there is your snuff watch. Rest in peace, Paul Newman. Here's Tim Riley. So stocks dropped like a rock today after the House of Representatives rejected a multi-billion dollar bailout plan. Investors reacted negatively by selling off stocks and buying gold. The Dow Jones Industrials lost 736 points. And it's not only American banks are having problems. The British government is nationalizing one of their bigger banks, the Bradford and Bingley Bank. Now, is this, an, is this a result of what's going on here? Or is this, a, a, in other words, is this a, an unfortunate coincidence? Or is this related to and to some extent caused by what's going on here? Well, caused by what's going on here. Because we have the tail that wangs the dog. Can I go back to the gold thing for just a second? You were saying a lot of people pulling their money out and buying gold. Yes. Uh, people do that in times of trouble. I guess... I say this, and I and I almost want to, again, give the caveat of, like, I don't want people to call about it. But on the other hand, I guess I do at some point want to explain to me. And by the way, Richie said that, I swear to God, there's a, an economics professor from Harvard that Richie's talking to right now, trying to get him on the show to explain stuff. Mm -hmm. Good for you, Richie. Because the gold thing, I mean, okay, so I take, let's say theoretically, I take all my money out of the bank. And Tim and I were talking about this before the show. I mean, there's idiots who withdrew all their money from banks I mean, who, in effect, they caused this. They caused all the banks to fail by taking their money. Your money, which is federally insured, your money's in, and no one has a hundred thousand dollars in a bank anyway. 
I mean, if your money's in a bank, it's insured up to 100 grand. You don't need to take it out. But, of course, people don't bother to think these things through. So they took out like $18 billion and they put the bank under. Uh, whereas if they had just left the money in the bank, things would be a lot better off. But, you know, you, it's just no talking to some people. So you got guys, who, let's say they take all their money out of the stock market. Yes. They go buy gold with it. Okay, well, then what are, you, what are you supposed to do then, like, when you need to pay the rent? You're supposed to pay that with a big piece of gold? I don't mean to sound dumb. I just don't understand it. What is that? Why would you buy gold? Well, gold will outsurvive any currency. Is that true? Yes. Is that because there's always somebody wanting to buy it? Yes. Okay, now here's my next question. Why? Gold is gold. But, I mean, the, okay. The, the price of gold is driven by supply and demand, including hoarding and disposal. Unlike most other commodities, the hoarding and disposal plays a much bigger role in affecting the price. Because most of the gold ever mined still exists and is potentially able to come up to the market on the right price. It just seems so weird. It just seems like, and I, maybe I'm not breaking the ground with this observation, it just seems so odd that you're taking all your money to the stock market and you're buying gold, which is really only stable because, like, everybody has just agreed to pretend that it is. Mm -hmm. Like, what if China just said, well, no, uh, we don't want gold. We want uh, bark. Mm -hmm. I mean, if they just decided that bark was going to be the thing that's gold. Seems to be, uh, it just seems well, very it, it puzzling. Also, see, in times of national crisis, people feel that their assets may be seized and that the currency may become worthless. They see gold as a solid asset that will always buy food or transportation. Thus, in times of great uncertainty, particularly when war is feared, the demand for gold rises. I could see that because greediness will never go away. And like jewels, you know, like all the cliche stereotypes see, of like jewelry. And, and it, here's that stereotype of the uh, German woman burning money in her stove because it was worth more to burn than it was to hold it. Right. Does that mean the more if we if we mine more gold, the existing gold becomes worth less? Actually, we're not doing that much as far as mining gold goes. But I'm saying like if we discover more gold, does the existing gold become worth less? I would imagine so, yes. So we ought to be burning gold. I don't think the whole thing is so confusing. I mean, am I? Am I? Are you with me on this? I'm not saying it doesn't make sense to somebody. I'm sure it does. It doesn't make sense to me. So, according to the World Gold Council, uh -huh. actual mine production of gold over the past few years has been close to 2,500 tons. About 3,000 tons goes into jewelry or industrial or dental production, and about 500 tons goes to retail investors and exchange for uh, traded gold funds. Part of me really wishes that they could find a way to make synthetic gold, just so we could flood the market with gold, just so I could watch that explode, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just, like, I just like to see stuff go bad. Let's welcome now to the Rick Emerson Show from Los Angeles, CNN Radio Correspondent James Rube. Hello, sir. What's up with you, brother? How's... Uh, let me, here's a dumb question. So are you in, well, first of all, are you in Vegas or Nevada? No, I'm in, uh, I'm in Los Angeles. Los Angeles. Uh, so... Uh, are things as crazy feeling there as they are, let's say, here or on the East Coast right now? It feels out of sorts. It feels, um, I, I don't know how, it's like, it's like the first day of school, first day of brand new school, right. first day of high school. feels like that. Uh, the, um, I don't know if, that, if that's what you mean, but that's the way it feels to uh, me. There's a great book by CNN legal analyst Jeffrey Tubin. He wrote this book, kind of the last word on the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Uh came out a few years back. It's a book called uh, A Vast Conspiracy, which I really would recommend to anybody who not only is interested in Bill Clinton's term and that, cons and that uh, sort of scandal, but also in how politics worked in the late 20th century in this country. It's a book called A Vast Conspiracy, but he has the, uh, he has the greatest phrase there. And he was talking about... There was this moment, and I, and I will sort of bring this back around. There was this moment during the Bill Clinton-Monica Lewinsky scandal when 
uh, you know, Ken Starr was digging up this dirt, and then there was all of these layers of revelation, secret tapes and the stained dress and just, you know, all of this just insanity. And then Larry Flint started putting out a bounty on sex scandals on Republican congressmen, and then they dug up one on, I can't even remember the guy's name, Bob Livingston, the guy who was going to step up and be the Speaker of the House. And, I mean, it was like one guy after another was getting tagged, you know, with having these outside affairs. And Jeffrey Tubin uses the greatest phrase. He said, he said, there was a sense of national vertigo, the feeling that events were spinning out of control. Wow. And that's how I feel about this last week or so and a day like today. I feel like this whole country is like when you stand up off the sofa too quickly and you get a big head rush. Yeah. And you're like, okay, hold on. Wait, wait, wait. Don't. And you're trying not to fall over into the lamp. I feel like that's where we are as a country right now. I hear you. And we are trying, we're desperately reaching down, trying to grab onto the corner of the love seat so that we don't give ourselves a concussion when we hit the tile. I mean, it's just, uh, you're right. There's, a, there's something, there's an out of sorts feeling. There's a, there's a weirdness in the air. Yep. So, are you covering the, you're covering the VP debate, right? Yeah, that's why I'm not in Vegas right now. And I wish I was in Vegas because I believe the prosecution has rested, although that wasn't officially said at the break. Um, they shouldn't even call it rested. They should just say the prosecution has given up. <laughs> yeah, we're done. The prosecution has thrown in the towel. Yeah. Jesus. Uh, and so what then? So then we get what? The, is there going to be a defense or is the defense just going to no, stand yeah, up and go like the defense? You know. uh, they're going to call some of the same guys. Right. Uh, Beardsley. Of course. You know, uh, a couple of the cops. Basically, they're going to call the cops on that tape of those guys saying, "We're they L.A. couldn't get them. We're going to get them here." Beardsley uh, sounds like a dog from Sesame Street. <laughs> Beardsley, what do you think? You know, I think O.J.'s being uh, hoodwinked. I think. Uh, well, I don't know, Davey. Should think, we let him go? I don't know, Davey. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that, man. Uh, Sarah just saw that for the first time a couple weeks ago. Really? The claymation thing? Yeah, yeah they play it David, on David and, Gal- Davey and Goliath? Yeah. 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 Every now and again, you'll see a good... I think The Simpsons... Uh, it might have been The Simpsons. They did a real creepy parody of... That Davy and Goliath show a while back. It was anyway. Um, so and this is all true. So the yeah. So the, the defense again. Then any idea how long that defense? I'm guessing is a last? few days because the judge and and Stewart's defense, C.J. Stewart, the other co-defendant or the co-defendant, I should say, um, he's going to have some of the same witnesses, and they want really a completely separate defense. But the judge said no. If we're calling this guy up here, you're both are going to. Um, use them in your uh, case in chief right. now, you know, which really ticks off C.J. Stewart because if they if they had it their way, they'd have O.J. Simpson sit in the hallway while they do their defense. They right. don't want the jury looking at O.J. Simpson while they're mounting a defense for C.J. Stewart. But the judge, man, I'll tell you this: if there's a if there's a conviction on either one of these guys, this is so ripe for appeal. Mm-hmm. It smells. It really it's overripe. So it'll be interesting. But I, I'm guessing the jury's going to get this case this week, and I'm going to miss the verdict. Uh, I'm going to be in St. Louis. So, yeah, so you're going to be there, and you're going to be doing uh, the anchored coverage of the vice presidential debate. VP, yes, uh, the Palin-Biden fiasco. And uh, I will say that we're actually going to be carrying uh, your anchored coverage. Oh, very nice. So, uh, so folks, uh, this coming Thursday, 6 p.m., uh, until uh, I think eight o'clock is when it goes uh, Pacific time. Uh, we are going to be carrying the vice presidential debate during the debate itself. Uh, there'll be a little commentary uh, on our end, and then of course you were doing the wraparound, as they say. 
So uh, it's a whole. Yeah, I don't know if they have me doing the wrap up show or they have me in the spin room. I have no idea what the agenda is just yet. It's. Uh, I, I, we were talking about the presidential debate on Friday, which it's funny how we've all sort of forgotten about that. Like that, that already in my head is like a softly faded watercolor. I'm not even really remembering <laughs> it was much about. Almost it. as bad as the as the Emmys. Can I just tell you this? CNN did this really great uh, thing where at the bottom of the screen they were having the dial groups sort of register their reaction, yeah. and so they had Republicans, Democrats, and then the alleged independents. And they were turning the dial, you know, up if they liked it and turn the dial down if they didn't like it. And you watch the whatever. And first of all, there was just like this flat line about two-thirds of the way through. Everybody was just like, <laughs> like the 15th time I heard, I'm not saying I'd meet with preconditions. I was, you know, I'm like looking at my watch and like picking my nose. And what about the references to Ronald Reagan? Yeah. A lot. <laughs> and so the dial groups just, it started to look like a dead person at some point. It was like three guys just suddenly flatlined all at once. But, um... But Laura and I were thinking, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to be in one of those focus groups with the dial, and I would like to get everybody together, and you just sort of agree in advance to screw with it. You're like, okay, okay, here's the thing. When there's absolutely nobody talking, turn it totally, off. Totally, no, for, for like, okay, look, here's the thing. Every three and a half minutes, we're all going to crank the dials randomly. No matter what. No matter what. <laughs> and then, okay, everybody, for no reason, we're going to turn the dials no in three, two, one, turn! And then just to see a huge downward spike, just for no reason. If, just to so see you could see the campaigns going, what does it mean? Like, analyzing it, trying to figure, I don't know, he's, as soon as he said the word tulip, everybody just hated him. I, get rid of tulip observations. I would give anything to be able to go in there and just hijack one of those focus groups just to put a stick in the spokes. Because I've reached the point where I just I just want to see the whole thing just just become a big disaster. That would be beautiful. Oh man, I just you know what it is. Uh, uh, whoever it was that created the the term culture jamming, that's what I love. I just like to be as John McClane would say, just a monkey in the wrench. You know. Um. All right. Uh. Well, it's probably a little too early to talk about this, but do you have any sense? of what this Thursday's debate is going to sound like? I, I, I think it's going to be tough on Joe Biden because he's going to have to look like he's not picking on Sarah Palin. Right. And, from, you know, and this isn't a political statement at all, but she's very pickable. Yeah. She doesn't have a whole lot of experience against guys like Joe Biden. So he's, he's going to have to really not look like he's slapping a girl. You know, but by the same token, he can't back off on, on his... Uh, on, on his agenda sure. or, or Obama's agenda. And it's going to be interesting to see, I think, how close Palin sticks to McCain's agenda because she has said a few things that she intends to, I don't know, uh, change him or work on him on this or on right, that or the right. other thing. So it'll be interesting to see exactly how close they are in policies and, and in issues. It's going to be weird, too, because, as you said, Biden, you know, because we have this weird – and I – I'll just say the double standard. I don't want to say it's sexism or not, but it's clearly a double standard in this country and often a triple and quadruple standard. Then on the one hand, to the voters, and again, I'm just saying strictly in, 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 in appealing to the average American nitwit who goes in there and pulls, pulls the lever, you can't look like you're picking on a girl. But on the other hand, as a male politician, he can't look like he gets schooled by a girl because no one in True. this country will vote for a guy who got beaten up on by a woman. I mean, and that's sexist, but it's just the way it is. You can't let a woman be kicking you around somewhere. It's almost like the, the best thing to do would be to have both behind a screen with their voices distorted. Oh, so hey, you there you go. So that you can't tell. Okay. But, then, but you know who they are anyway because you know who the candidates are. But it has to be almost that anonymous so you don't have those those biases going in. You know, I've said for a long time that there ought to be a news uh, uh, network uh, that does 
sort of something the equivalent of that, where, in other words, the news is presented by some sort of like CGI character, and you don't know who wrote it, you don't know who's delivering it, you don't know the gender or the race or the background or the age of whoever's presenting it, so you judge it strictly and solely on the facts, because, you know, Americans read all kinds of symbolism and all kinds of stuff, but uh, uh, just from a political analyst point of view, and I have these conversations with Lisa a lot where I just I have my, my inner sort of Dick Morris that comes out, that I really do believe the key for Biden is to look is to, is to have the dad daughter dynamic, you know, sort of like Dick Cheney did with uh, you know with um, uh, John Edwards, where he would say, well, look, I admire your spunk and your enthusiasm, but you're very green and misguided. And I think Biden's got to do it with Sarah Palin, where he's got to be like, you know, I hope my daughters grow up to be just like you. I admire your ambition and your energy, but boy, you've only been on the job for like a week, and you just don't, you know, this is for grownups. So by the same token, though, I mean, he can't he can't pull that thing that John McCain's getting criticized for on Friday, that phrase. Well, you don't understand. Right. You know, I mean, a lot of people, even some Republicans, took that as condescending. And that really kind of backfired on him just a little bit. So Joe Biden has to be very careful if he does that father-daughter dynamic. He's going to have to be real careful not to be condescending about yep. it, but being uh, empathetic or sympathetic about it. And he's only, and it's like winner-take-all because he's only got the one debate. I mean, he doesn't get a second baby. chance at this. So That's why this is going to be fun. It's either going to be one of the best things to happen or one of the most ridiculous things. Oh. That's why I think they're sending me. Hey, we're going to get, you know, we're, we're going to get food. I'm going to order in snacks, and we're all just going to, it's going to, we're going to make a night of it, my friend. Uh, hey, are you so are you going to be there then? Yes. Yeah, so, so here's the deal. So on Thursday, yeah, uh, we will have uh, CNN's anchored coverage of the vice presidential debate, and I think you're doing the pre the pregame stuff. Um, and then during the debate itself, uh, Tim Riley, news director, uh, myself, and a woman named Storm Large, who you may or may not have met, um, will be here doing some commentary during the actual debate. Storm the singer. Storm the singer. Yeah, I better. Yeah, we're gonna do some co- some commentary during the actual meat of the debate itself, and then CNN will do a recap afterward. And and after that, we we may do our own final thoughts or whatever. So it's gonna be kind of a it's gonna be a melange, as they say. Well, it's going to be interesting. I can tell you that for sure. I uh I have to ask this final question: Will you at any point this week be using the phrase "He's Biden his time for the right moment"? <laughs> I, I don't think so. All right, thank you. I mean, but uh, I would have been disappointed. Uh, what if I did? If you were going to be right, Joe is biding his time until Thursday. I, I'm glad to know you're not going to say that. No, I, I'm not a Hallmark kind of guy. All right, all right, brother. Uh, enjoy your day. We'll talk to you very soon. Thank you. There you go, Jim Roop, ladies and gentlemen. Hello, Tim Riley. Hello, hello. Hello, Brooke Shields. Here's Tim Riley. What was I going to do? No idea. Well, let me tell you about this person who died eating red hot chili sauce as a dare. He's an aspiring chef. He died after eating super hot chili sauce as part of an endurance competition with a friend. Andrew Lee challenged his girlfriend's brother to a contest to see who could eat the spiciest sauce that he could create. Uh, The forklift truck driver wanted to cook for a living, prepared a tomato sauce made with red chilies grown on her father's allotment. After eating it, he suffered intense discomfort and itching. Uh, So apparently he uh, took to his bed and... uh, he was starting to scratch himself, and then he got tired. <laughs> so his uh, girlfriend took over the scratching of his back until he fell asleep. Well, he never woke up again. If you eat a food and suddenly you're covered in itches, mm-hmm. that's hospital time. Yeah, that's a bad sign. Yeah. Uh, he enjoyed cooking for his friends. He also wanted to be a chef, but he didn't want to start at the bottom. Well, okay. We'll do these two calls. We'll break. We'll come back. Tim Riley around the corner with more news. Uh, let's see. What else did we we have? A Geek Watch deal, Penis Watch. I wanted that Britney watch today. Uh, 
Bobby Fatboy Roberts will be in later on today with uh, top five closing credit songs from a film. Hi, you're on the Rick Emerson Show. Hello. Hey, Rick. Hey, Tim. Hey, sir. What's up? A few general questions about the, the whimsy that is the Rick Emerson Show. About the what? The whimsy that, yes. Yeah, the, at the end of the, every show, you always say, watch out for snakes. Yes, sir. Uh, what is with that? Uh, that is a reference to the Mystery Science Theater 3000 episode, Ega. Uh, and there is, uh, and actually just the film itself. There's this, uh, you know Mystery Science Theater 3000? So there's I mean, a I love Mr. Sanders. There's a movie called Ega uh, with uh I think Richard Keel who played Jaws in the Bond films. Um but there is this terrible moment where they're getting they ride a dune buggy out to the desert. They're getting out of the dune buggy. They're walking into the desert to look for this sort of caveman that the woman says she saw. And all three of them, all three of the actors are on screen. Dad, girlfriend, boyfriend. They're all on camera. There's no one else in the scene, right? They're in the middle of the desert. They get out of the dune buggy. They prepare to walk off. And as all three of them are on the screen, none of them talking, you just hear this voice go, Watch out for snakes! Which, like, I guess one of the characters is supposedly saying, like an overdubbed, except in the shot, none of them is talking and there's no one else there. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. It's like this piece, and it's a the line of dialogue that didn't need to be there. There are no snakes in the film. So at some point, they decided, you know what this, you know what this scene really needs? It needs someone saying, watch out for snakes. But no one's talking. There's no one else in the screen. There are no snakes. Doesn't matter. Dub in that line. So they just say, watch out for snakes for no reason. That line has actually, by the way, been used in the office. There was a sequence in the office where they were all going out to the beach. And as they get off the bus, Michael, I think, says, watch out for snakes. So that's where it's from, sir. Yeah, uh, Paul Newman was a little before my time, but uh, you know I do appreciate his films. Road to Perdition was a really good film I liked, uh, and uh, one of the staples in our household is uh, Newman's Own Grape Juice. Yeah, let's all not let's also not forget the movie Blaze. By the way, Blaze is a good film. All right, thank you, my friend. And uh, one more thing, did you get the uh, gift that I dropped off for you with Dave Zim? I don't know what was it. Okay, uh, so it's kind of a surprise. You'll have to find out when you get it. But uh, uh, what, I, told, you... I told I told Richie about it. Did you drop it off today? I dropped it off this morning about 11.30. Then, no, I, I will have not have gotten it, but I, uh, I'll get it after the show, sir. Okay. All right, thank you. Thank One you, more then, Thank you, my friend. One more, then we break. Hi, you're on the Rick Emerson Show. Then we dance. Hello. Greetings. Uh, quick quick Paul Newman story. I have a uh, late aunt that lived in Connecticut, <clears throat> just outside of Hartford, and she would drive... Uh, to see one of her friends every few weekends, uh, and, and on the drive, there was a very, very small town, apparently near where Paul Newman lived, mm -hmm. and there was a little ice cream store in that town. And her friend had told her, she said, whenever you're driving up to my house, you might want to just stop in because he's known, Paul Newman is known to stop in there on Saturday or Sunday afternoons and, and just have an ice cream. And she was a huge fan, and of course, as the story in our family has been told a hundred times, she stopped in there, of course, on her way up to her friend's house one day and walked in and ordered an ice cream cone and then as she grabbed her cone, she kind of heeled around and turned and saw Paul Newman sitting at this little table in the back. And That's she so cool. just got instantly nervous and, and just overcome with emotion. And he kind of, she got up the, the, the guts and he kind of looked up at her and she walked over and she just said, I just wanted to just say I'm such a huge fan and I just love your films. And I've had, you know, just the most, just tons of admiration for her for years and years. And he kind of smiled and and kind of looked at her and said, well, thank you. And then she scurried out the door and went out to her car and realized that she didn't have her ice cream cone. So she thought, oh, no, i got to go back in there and, and get my ice cream cone. And so she she kind of gets up the courage again, and she goes back into the into the store, and she looks on the counter, and there's no ice cream cone sitting in the little holder on the counter. And she's now she's kind of lost, and she's a little confused, and she kind of turns around again, almost like 
not knowing what to do, and she locks eyes with Paul Newman, and he very politely looks right at her and goes, it's in your purse. <laughs> she, she had dumped it. <laughs> that is great. And he, and he knew it the whole time, and he let her do it, of course. I mean, course. apparently she was so nervous, she just put her ice cream cone in her purse, introduced herself to him, and walked outside, and then came back and looking for it. So It's a wonderful that's story. Only, that's the only two cents I've got for you today, folks. Thank you. Now, all right. There you go. Bye now. All right. Take a break. Back after this. Tim Riley, more news around the corner? Yes, yes. You have that look on your face like something bad just happened again. No. No more than usual. All right. Just the same old bad? I'm getting used to the same old bad. Back after this. More from Tim Riley later on. Bobby Fatboy Roberts with his top five. More of your phone calls and so forth. Stay there. It's the Rick Emerson Radio Program. Don't go anywhere. Why, hello, it's the Rick Emerson Radio Program. It's 503-733-2970. 503-733-2970. Here's a question. I don't know if there's much of an answer to this. I mean, this is probably, this isn't one of those, do animals quack differently in different countries questions or whatever. You know, I was thinking about this this weekend, you know, because we got the new dog and all. And this is not an excuse for me to tell more dog stories. Because dog stories are, you know, I always say that, like, your dreams and your childhood are only interesting to you. Dog stories are only interesting to other people that have dogs. Just like baby stories and finger painting and crap, the only interesting to other parents. And here's the thing about this. Dog stories and child stories have this in common. And yes, I am making a comparison between the two. And that's just going to be have to, you know, have to be something you're okay with. Dog stories and kid stories are the same in this regard. They are only interesting to other people who own either a child or a dog. And it's interesting largely because it then gives them an excuse to tell you a dog or child story. Mm-hmm. In other words, you go, well, um, my two-year-old is in, they have, I don't know, whatever they go to school for, with daycare or whatever, preschool. And my three-year-old's going to preschool, and there, you know, they do this really interesting thing with math, where it's all about starfish or whatever. And the other parent smiles and nods, and they don't really care about that story. They're waiting their turn. Totally. They're, they're waiting their turn to go, no, 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 let me tell you why my child is smarter and brighter than all the other kids. Not true. Uh, let me give you an example of the cute thing that my child did that really is only cute to me as a parent. And dog people are the same way. Don't get me wrong. So during the break, I was talking, I was asking Sarah and Tim about some, you know, crate training advice for my dog. And Tim and Sarah very graciously answered. And then, of course, it's just an excuse then for us to just go back and forth like some sort of canine conversational hacky sack sharing stories about our pets. Um, But I did write down this question to myself. And this was, what, at 345 on Saturday. I wrote down this question, why do humans have pets? And actually, I will remove dogs from the equation because National Geographic has a fantastic documentary called um, Wolf to Wolf about how the relationship between dogs and humans started. I've seen that. Yeah, it's fascinating. And there really is, I think, a pretty sound evolutionary strategy for why dogs and humans get along so well. So let's take dogs out of the equation. Why do humans have the desire to have non-canine pets? I mean, where is that from? Like a hamster. Like, why? Nothing wrong with it. It's just sort of curious. Like, why is why do humans have this in inborn desire to have like a goldfish? It's kind of strange. Like, it's a thing you have to take care of. Requires your time and energy. On some level, requires your food, depending on what it is. It's odd that. And but I mean, dogs, of course, serve a demonstrable evolutionary purpose in terms of their integration with humans. You can't say that about, like, a ferret or a gerbil or something. There's really no reason why humans should want pets. 
The only, that is true. The only two conclusions I came up with, these are both theories. Here are my two theories as to why humans crave non-canine pets. Because I was thinking specifically of, like, parrots or something. One, as some sort of a subconscious desire to have a, uh, in other words, subconsciously we want something around that will give us a warning if our environment or ecosystem becomes dangerous. You know, like the canary in the coal mine thing. So, in other words, you want to ferret around because on some level his health will tell you whether or not the environment is bad for your health. If he starts to turn, you know, if he goes sick, if he turns, you know, if he gets a cough or if, you know, he somehow becomes sickly, then maybe it's an early warning system to humans that something is wrong in the environment and you might be in danger. Uh, so I was thinking about that. Early man maybe wanted an animal around so he would know if the air was going wrong, if there was something wrong with the water. Or because probably early man who had pets maybe shared his food with the pets and the pet was there, again, as some sort of early warning device if the food was bad or poisoned. So that was my first theory. My second theory was, this is a little more morbid, that the human desire to have pets, especially non-canine pets, derives from a subconscious desire to always have, wait for it, an emergency food source present. Which is kind of... I'm like just thinking companionship and you're thinking like, can I have well, something to eat? Well, but I mean... In certain cultures, they, they feast upon dogs. That is true. And, I, and they've said now National Geographic, again, they have this whole thing about early man who had wolves with him uh, as a companion okay they would also be there just like they were with horses at a certain point in american history they would also be there as an emergency food source if you were just trapped in the middle of nothing with nothing to eat you know you got the you know your four-legged friend there so that's what my wife uh, laura would call a stone revelation that i had at 345 while walking through lloyd center mall boy and let me do two observations about lloyd center mall then we'll go back to the ministry of truth then uh tim and so forth um so I was uh, we were we were walking through the Hot Topic, uh, just because it's what I do. And it's a Hot Topic. It's a store for uh, for today's angry youth. And I was noting that, typically speaking, in real life, and not just because I was at Lloyd Center, in real life, you never ever ever see a perfectly proportioned Gothic girl ever. They're always either way too skinny or way too fat. Always. The only places you see a well-proportioned Gothic girl are like in the pages of Gothic Beauty magazine, uh, you know, or like uh, you know in some you know or like in some music video or something. Like it is never in real life. In real life, and so it was this weekend. They were like, it was like this Laurel and Hardy Gothic couple, but they were chicks, and it's like the one girl took all the other girls' food or something. <laughs> one girl was all like rail thin, but like wearing all of her like weird, you know, like Elizabethan finery, and then the other girl was all like, you know, just huge. Decked out in the same finery, badly fitting. You just you never see like the normal looking goth girl in real life. Um, my second observation uh, was going to be uh, this. Well, never mind. It's it's just stupid and creepy. I won't make. It. I, I was just going to say this. They had the hottest girl, and I know that this sounds. You just make all the fun of this you want. They had the hottest girl in the window of that torrid store. <laughs> Which is a store for today's larger girl. What, by hottest girl, you mean like mannequin? No, no, it was like one of those, like, hanging big, you know, like a... Oh, a uh, picture of a girl. Yeah, like one of those foam core displays where it's like a picture of a girl that's blown up and then it's hanging in the window like they have it, whatever. Uh, and it wasn't Steven Tyler's daughter. Uh, she was the one who was the Torrid model for a long time. If you go to the Lloyd Center, uh, Torrid, you know, at some point, like the next couple of days, you look for the blonde girl who's hanging on that picture in the left window what I'm talking about. Ladies and gentlemen, at the Ministry of Truth, here's Tim Riley. And now, now, from the Ministry of Truth, this is Tim Riley. Now, it's all Nancy Pelosi's fault, say the Republicans. 
Massachusetts Democrat Party Frank responds to these comments after the bailout plan went south. I'll make an offer. Give me those 12 people's names, and I will go talk uncharacteristically nicely to them. <laughs> and tell them what wonderful people they are, and maybe they'll now think about the country. He said uh, Republicans are, quote, putting feelings before a country. I mean, I would not have imputed that degree of pettiness and hypersensitivity. I mean, we also have, as the leader will tell you who's been working with them, we don't believe they have the votes, and I think they are covering up the embarrassment of not having the votes. I don't even understand who's on what side anymore. I really don't. No. So let me ask you this, Tim. In your economic assessment, as a clear-eyed, clear-thinking individual here on this program, so the $700 billion thing, if it doesn't, and by the way, uh, it seems like somebody ought to be using that phrase, the $700 billion club or the $700 billion club. It's not all 700 at once. Is it in it's, increments? It's 250 plus 100, so it comes out to 350 to begin with. That's the initial payment? Right. So if this doesn't go through, if they can't make this work somehow, do you share the assessment that we're just doomed? Pretty much. I mean, is it is it in your... I, I mean, if Wall Street is not functioning, then the country does not. So you believe, in your opinion, this is a necessary thing if we are to avoid f full-on screaming financial ruin? I kind of wish it could be done in the private sector, mm -hmm. but there doesn't seem to be any concrete plan for that. No, it doesn't. And I have to go back to that point I was making early on in the program, and the guy called up and said that I was whistling Dixie or whatever it is you're doing, whatever whatever that phrase is about this. And it is sort of disturbing to me that you've got these corporations that are making billions and billions of dollars, but they're having to borrow money every month like to cover their payroll. Yeah. I mean, if you are not taking the money you make and then planning for, I mean, I know I sound like I'm in that movie Dave right now where he brings Charles Grodin in. Charles Grodin goes, who does these books? But, but no private citizen, no private family could operate the way that these companies seem to operate and then expect any help or, or, you know, or think that anybody would have any sympathy for them. I mean, you know, if you're some massive car maker, you're some, some company with billions of dollars in annual revenues, and yet you're having to do this weird month-to-month -month borrowing to be covering your expenses, you're just managing your money poorly. Uh, and people can accuse me of boiling that down to too bare of an essence, but that does seem like at its base, that's what we're talking about is companies that do not put anything away for the rainy day. So, just my just my observation. Here's Tim Riley. And the latest trend sweeping America, according to this article from CNN, people working a second job while they're working the first job without anybody knowing it. They're called daylighters. Uh, for instance, a salesperson will sneak into a bathroom stall, which becomes their secret cubicle, for their other job as a mortgage broker. Maybe that's what Larry Craig was doing. They send out emails... They check their voicemail and make appointments. Apparently, this is the new American lifestyle. Have your first job, and then secretly, while you're working, have the second one well, online. I think uh, I think there are probably a lot of people who do that with, uh, sounds kind of silly, but I think a lot of people do it with eBay auctions. Yeah. I mean, if your company allows you access to eBay, or if you've got um, a laptop, or maybe even like a BlackBerry or an iPhone or something, you could probably be running a pretty profitable eBay business, mm -hmm. or any sort of an online business during the day. Uh, I know somebody who I will not name who makes a, a, a fur piece, as my grandmother used to say, uh, makes a, a pretty good chunk of money running uh, an online store, and I think does that during the day, during the other job, and does it via a handheld. 
So that doesn't seem unlikely at all. Again, especially if you do have some sort of handheld access to the internet with the company can't monitor. Mm-hmm. That I think I think you would probably be staggered to the number of people who are running some sort of weird backdoor business, you know, off their computer while they're presumably on the clock somewhere else. Darn it! I can't even get cell phone reception in here. I guess I can't. <laughs> Uh, okay. Uh, hi, your other Rick Emerson show. Hello. Hi, Rick. What's up? Hey, you asked about gold and mm. how it all works in the economy. Uh, I suppose I did. I could tell you, but it's easier to go to gold and economic freedom in Google. The mm-hmm. paper written by a guy you've heard of before, Alan Greenspan. Okay. Now, that guy's smart enough to have known when to retire. Obviously. Don't you kind of wish Alan Greenspan was running things right now? Wouldn't you feel a little more confident with him? He seemed like a guy who could get things done. Mm-hmm. Alan so, Greenspan really seemed like a They called him the maestro. He seemed like a guy who really kind of knew what he was doing. Yeah, except for I think he intended this to happen. Mm. <laughs> the plot. And if you read, if you read no, Golden Economics... No, no, no. I'm not going to, but thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it, really. Honestly, I do, but no. All right. Uh, it's 503, and don't call up and tell me to read The Creature from Jekyll Island, either. Just don't. Here's Tim Riley at the Ministry of Truth on KCMD Portland. That would be daylighting. Trying to do a second task while you're doing the first one. What? That was the article we were just speaking of. Never mind. Okay. An 85-year-old woman wrestled with a thief who ended up stealing six whole dollars from her. The woman's home is on Royal... I won't say where, but it's somewhere in Washington County. She heard somebody at the door, so she kind of crazily answers the door at night. And is confronted by a man wearing a black ski mask. Now, didn't you see the black ski mask guy through the... Well, apparently not. The suspect uh, pointed what looked like a gun at her from underneath his shirt and demanded her money. The woman told police she then grabbed the object that was under his shirt and they began to struggle. The suspect then threatened to shoot the woman and demanded the money. The woman complied and he ran off with $6. They're not sure if the robber's a male or female because they were wearing a black mask. Here's another observation from my time at Lloyd Center this weekend. So... Uh, Lara and I were, you know, there's that, uh, there's that movie theater right inside Lloyd Center, and then off to the right of the movie theater, there's that sort of arcade, and I mean, video game arcades, I mean, you know, it's got to be a dying industry at this point, I mean, they make record stores look positively healthy, because what possible point is it to go to the mall to spend like 75 cents a throw on a video game? I mean, unless it's a video game that you cannot possibly play at your home, such as Sega's Top Skater, which is what Lara and I were playing. There's, I mean, even that, I mean, a lot of those sort of kinesthetic video games are coming to the house, uh, you know, via the Nintendo Wii and so forth. So running a video game arcade just seems like a road to financial ruin, except for the redemption games. And redemption games, that's what it's all about with the kids, where you go in and you, like, do something and then you win tickets or you win a prize or whatever. I mean, redemption games, by the way, have come a long way from when I was a kid, because I was a kid, they just had the skee-ball thing. Like, you'd roll the skee-ball and then it would spit out a bunch of tickets. Uh, and then you'd like go take the tickets and buy some overpriced plastic gigaws. But you go to Lloyd Center now. I mean, there's this redemption. When you walk into the, that Lloyd Center arcade, and I forget what it's called. There is this game on the left. I mean, it's the size of like, I mean, it's the size of of of. It's like probably twice the size of one of those crane plush toy games. You know those things that they have. It's probably like twice as wide and half again as tall. And there is, I swear to God, an Xbox in there that you can win. And it's just like a game of skill, where you put in like two bucks, uh, and it's basically like a Tetris thing. It's like an electronic stacking game. And if you can stack the bricks all the way to the top, which is like impossible, uh, if you can stack the bricks all the way to the top, you, there's an Xbox in there that will that will come out. I mean, it's insane. I don't believe that's true. It's true. It's, I mean, I'm not saying you can actually win yeah, it. I don't think you could do that. Right next to that, right next to that is another game in that same arcade at Lloyd Center where you can. There's like a bunch of iPods in there. I mean, there's like a 60-gig iPod in there that you go, well, how do you win? Well, you win by, like, 
You know, hitting hitting a clown three times on the nose with it's a like, thing. It's like putting a Roomba in there. They might as well. I mean, it's just, it's a little surreal, actually. But, I mean, they must, you know, they wouldn't be able to do it if there wasn't some actual chance that you could win. It's just the chance is infinitesimal. I mean, the chance has got to be minuscule. But there was just a line of people, and not just kids. There was a line of, like, couples, uh, often the same kinds of people you might think would be in line for big bags of cotton candy. On their honeymoon. Yes, in that area. exactly. Where should we go for a honeymoon? Let's go try and win one of them, uh, them their wees in the stacking game. So my wife and I had the greatest idea for getting ourselves through this financial crisis. We went to buy, and they sell those games, too. You go to that Lloyd Center place, they're all price tags. Like, the, the one stacking game that, like, had, it was like a, it was a, 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 an Xbox 360, a digital camera. What was the other prize? It was like a TiVo. And you can buy the game for, like, $1,300. Like, for $1,300, they'll sell you the machine. Laura and I were thinking, gonna buy the machine, set it up on the sidewalk outside of our house in southeast Portland. Just run it all day long. I could probably quit this job off of that. I could probably just, I mean, just get one of those crane games, stick it in my garage in southeast Portland, sit there five, six hours a day. I'd probably make more than I could at nine other jobs put together. So really, this whole radio thing doesn't work out. You come by Rick's House of Fun and Values in southeast Portland. I will be the guy with the crane game and the stacking game on the sidewalk in front of my residence. Here's Tim Riley. I'll stop by if you get air hockey. Um, I can get that as well, Tim. Tualatin police arrested a man after his girlfriend said he brought a gun to bed and threatened her. Officers were called to the woman's Tualatin home. She reported that her boyfriend, 28-year-old Ben J. Shiprock, had broken her bedroom door, gotten into the bed with a gun, and threatened her. The woman called police. She ran for the residence on uh, South Pueblo Street. With the help of her cell phone, Shiprock was arrested outside the woman's home a little bit later. charged with menacing harassment and the unuseful, uh, lawful use of a weapon and firearm that was seized from his home. It's no way to influence a woman. Let's see, I had something else here. An Indiana father kills a sex offender who broke into his home. A round of applause for this fellow. A convicted sex offender died during a struggle with a father who found the naked man in or near his 17-year-old daughter's bedroom. Police spokesman said uh, this fellow had a heart condition and he may have had a heart attack. Uh, this fellow Myers was naked except for the mask and latex gloves that he had. Uh, a window near the girlfriend's bedroom with rope, condoms, and a knife. He was familiar with the home's layout because it belonged to a relative. The girl awoke and screamed when she saw the man in the room. The father responded and struggled with the intruder while the girl's mother phoned 911. And the intruder's dead? Mm-hmm. If the person breaks into your Excellent. home, you are adjusted in using deadly force to defend your family. Damn straight. In this situation, I don't think he was trying to kill him. He was just trying to hold him down. That's what I'm talking about. So, there you go. Good for you. Uh, well, let's do, uh, Tim, let's, let's do, uh, do we have the Britney watch? I do, I have a whole Let's do that, and then we'll take a break. Uh, let's do the Britney watch, we'll take a break, we'll come back. Uh, Bobby Fatboy Roberts will join us with the top five. Uh, later on, more from Tim Riley, your phone calls, uh, et cetera. Here's, uh, your Britney watch from Monday on the Rick Emerson Radio Program. says, Britney Spears' sex tape exists, claims Adnan Gallup. Uh, former Britney Spears beau Adnan Gallup claims he has a sex tape featuring Britney Spears, which he'll sell to the highest bidder. There is such a tape, but I won't discuss prices for hypothetical inquiries, he tells Heat Magazine. 
Unless there is a locked-in deal, I will go no further. I am not interested in selling out any other details about Brittany, he adds. According to The Sun, an unconfirmed source says the two-hour tape. Two hours. Two hours were shot in Mexico. It shows Brittany wearing nothing other than a ping wing. A pig wig. A ping wig. P-I-N-G-W-I-G. <laughs> Not to be confused with a pig wig. Try the whole sentence from the beginning. According to the Sun, an unconfirmed source says the two-hour tape was shot in Mexico and shows Brittany wearing nothing other than a ping wig. Is a ping wig, is like a merkin? I'm not sure. Is it probably pink? Pink Unless wig? wearing the pink wig. Is wearing the pink wig code for something? P-I-N-G wig. Baby, we, Baby, we have to wait a couple of days. I'm wearing the pink wig. Uh, Brittany took off to Mexico with Adnan, January 9th, for a 25-hour uh, sojourn to Mexico. According to the staff of the Rosarito Beach Resort in Mexico... Rosarito, that does sound sophisticated. Uh, Brittany appeared to be high during her seven hours at the Rosarito Beach Hotel in Mexico, January 10th. All right, quickly, do we think it's real? Yes. Yes. Me, She was too. so out of it. Are totally. you kidding me? And that oh, guy yeah. seems so creepy anyway. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I, for one, root for the stiff drinks they serve down there to Americanos. I... I root, I root for this tape to be released. Mm-hmm. Excellent. All right, there you go. Let's take a break. We'll come back after this. Uh, Fat Boy Roberts around the corner. More from Tim Riley later on. You stay there. It's the Rick Emerson Radio Program. There's your Britney Watch. Emerson radio program. It's 503-733-2970. 503-733-2970. Still to come, uh, more from Tim Riley. Geek watch. Penis watch. All right, let's see. Have I lamented the marrying off of Scarlett Johansson? Yes? Yes. All right. And I've lamented the marrying off of Ryan Reynolds. You know, we are. We're like uh, that couple in the movies where it's like our significant others or the people we were, you know, had a crush on, got married, and then you and I are alone drinking at the wedding afterward. Like, yep, here's to them. Oh, they have happiness, sons of bitches. Because, um, you know, the inevitable impregnating and ballooning up and stretching and, you know, just never never snapping back will happen now. You know, so what are you going to do? Uh, the only thing we have to look forward to now are, like, big uh, maternity bosoms. That's it. I mean, that's the last, that is going to be the last great act of an American sex symbol. Uh, just the uh, the large the large mom breasts. Well, I don't see her having kids. Really? So soon. See, but you know how many how many people do we know about but who we've made that statement? But they did just the wedding, so you never totally. know. Uh, let's see. So did they really? Did they accelerate the wedding? Well, because they said that she's like, we're both still young. We're gonna take some time. You know, like that was I think she said that like five months ago. Ah. Uh, and no, they're not. Stick turns blue and yeah. Uh, okay, so, uh, Scarlett Johansson, Mythbusters, so I haven't looked into it, but I do believe it is sold out. I think, I don't want to swear to that, but a guy said he couldn't find any listing for the Mythbusters thing, which is coming this Sunday at the Schnitzer, um, at Ticketmaster.com. I know the last week tickets are very close to selling out, so, uh, proceed carefully. Let's see, um, and I think that's it. I think that's it for now. 
All right. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome now to the Rick Emerson Show from Rock 101 KUFO, our good friend Bobby Fatboy Roberts. Hello, sir. Hello. All right. So we are taking a brief, uh, this is a sort of interstitial between some of our other top fives. About a week and a half ago, we uncorked this whole top five songs, teenage moping, angst-ridden, depressing, whatever. By the way, we have confirmed now that uh, everybody's favorite caller, Andy the Homeschool Kid, will be coming in this Friday, I believe, to count down his top five moping songs. And he's great. He sent me this email, and he was like, so I'm not really moping nearly as often as I would. As I was just a while back. But I think the top five really is going to be great. And so he's going to be coming in this Friday. Wait, did he apologize for not moping enough? No. He was, is that how he opened his email? I'm sorry I'm not a sad sack. No, he wasn't really apologizing. He was just saying, he was noting that he's a, he's a different man now than he was. Oh. I think he's put some of those things behind him. That's in the rearview mirror for Andy. Uh, so, but he's going to come in this Friday. And I'm going to have him uh, in the 2 o'clock hour with Aaron, which will just be fantastic. Uh, just a wonderful confluence oh, of all things great. Overload. Uh, so that'll be this Friday, Andy the Homeschool Kid. Tomorrow, Lisa Woods, Top 5 Teenage Moping Songs. Thir- uh, Wednesday, Court's Top 5 mm-hmm. Moping Songs. Thursday, Big Jim. Yeah, I just I was so. back there helping Big Jim and Lisa put theirs together. This is Friday, Lisa? Uh, no, no, no. Lisa? Tomorrow, Lisa. Wednesday, Court. Thursday, Big Jim. Okay. Uh, Lisa was free. She came into my office this morning. She's like, there's so much pressure. Everybody's going to judge me. And I said, that is true. This will be the first time many people in the audience have ever heard of you or heard of your music taste. So don't screw up. I pulled down two of the songs for her today. Yes, people are going to judge her. Yeah. There are going to be some judgments made. There was already somebody who told me that they were going to be putting somebody by Depeche Mode on the list, but now they can't because of Scott Daly. Yeah. Well, that's that's Scott ruining things for people. As he always does. All right, so amiable, goofy way. But so we're going to be breaking that up a little bit with this top five. Now, last week you had the top five previously existing Papa Rock songs that accompanied the opening credits to a film. Yes. And so this is the bookend to that. These are the top five pop or rock songs that accompany the closing credits to a film. Anything you'd like to say before we begin? Um, I, Like with the opening credits, the closing credits are um, not just the song by itself, but how it fits with the movie, the theme of the movie. What, I mean, with the closing credits specifically, you have like 90 to two hours of movie right. that this song has to thematically sum up. And then on top of that, it wasn't even written for the movie. It just right. happens to be that perfect confluence of song and feeling. And, and he, typically, those closing credit songs can elevate the uh, the movie itself and the song itself right. to something greater. So that's what I was looking at. Um, some of these songs seem sort of odd as on the surface. I'm, you might not have heard of some of them except for in these closing right. credits. So um, it's it's the way that they blended with the movie that caused me to pick them. All right, so, all right, ladies and gentlemen. Without further ado. Five, four, three, two, one, fire. Germs. Bobby Fatboy Roberts with his top five previously extant pop or rock songs that accompany the closing credits of a film. All right. The honorable mention, Running the World by Jarvis Cocker from Children of Men. Now, this song had to be heavily censored. I'm a bad person. I've never seen Children of Men. Oh, oh. I know. Oh, Every man. time I talk to my friend Patrick, he's just like, dude, no, dude. Children of Men is right up your alley because there's just, just enough of a glimmer of hope to redeem the endlessly bleak film that you just watched. And it's made so beautifully. There's a tracking shot in this movie that goes for like about 18 minutes. He talks about that shot endlessly. Oh, I mean, and it, yes, it's, it's 
hashed together from a couple different takes, I believe. There's there's some uh, digital trickery to help right. it out. But still, it's it's probably one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen on film. And I, I say beautiful, not to say like, you know, it's like flowers and there's there's angels well and trumpets and cherubs. Yeah, I mean, well, it's it's just this dystopian battlefield scene. And it starts with this one guy and he's going to rescue the last or you know, the first and last at this point baby on Earth. Right. And he... It's just one single shot following Clive Owen up and down the stairs of his building as it's being shelled. And, uh, spoilers, he succeeds, but um, bad things happen anyway. Um, the movie is just horribly nasty, bleak, and almost hopeless, except for that ending. And then this song kicks in, and Jarvis Cocker, um, being Jarvis Cocker, one of the Supreme Sworn Asses of all, pop music, writes a song that sort of uh, dresses down... Jingoism, xenophobia, and he does it in this slightly right. bouncy way that makes you happy. You are a selfish, lazy, fat American who well, doesn't use, care about anyone else. To use the cliche, it's on my Netflix queue. Okay, so it'll show up one of these days. I got Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil been sitting on my TV for like three weeks. Oh yeah, you can just skip that. Wow. You can just skip well, that one. I really like that. Movie. Well, here's oh. the thing. I, maybe I need to revisit it because I remember when I saw it, I was just like, Coma. I didn't initially like it, but I've, I've seen it recently again, and I, I do dig it. Especially, yeah. I love Kevin Spacey so much. Well, I will say this: I like Clint Eastwood, uh-huh. and then I don't mean to make it sound like I'm watching it out of obligation, but uh, you know, Chris Morris, yeah, Johnny's boyfriend. Oh yeah. So he's got. I think he would agree with this term. He's got a fetish for that movie. He actually takes vacations uh-huh. to what is it, Savannah? Yeah. He goes on Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil vacations by himself. Where he just goes to Savannah and goes to all the locations and yeah. just, like, soaks in it. Well, that makes sense to me because the movie looks beautiful. So, it's, probably, it's probably Eastwood's best-looking film. It's just the substance of the film is nil. It's like he talks about it so much, I feel like i got to watch it just so... Because otherwise I can't even relate to it. So, <laughs> so yeah, I, yeah. after you finish that one, get the children a man. Uh, top five Papa Rock songs that accompany the closing credits of a film. All right, number five, Don't You Forget About Me by Simple oh, Minds yeah. from The Breakfast Club. You're all you're all looking at Bender right now with his fist in the air. Boy, don't you Still wish they do a special edition of this though, where they then get rid of that other song that takes this over? Yeah, yeah, that that other because he does the big fist in the air, and then it almost immediately goes to some other crap I don't care about. Yeah, well, and I picked this just because I mean the, the closing credits start with this song. There's another song on this list where um, that sort of happens, where it starts with the song I picked, and then it gets finished off by another song. I want to make. I'm trying to be fair about it. If it start, the closing credits start with the song. That's the song I'm going to pick. Besides, the song that follows up after this. What is that? It's, it's, I don't even remember what it is. No, no one remembers. And I keep wanting John Hughes to do a special edition of that film, which, by the way, he's never done at all. Yeah. Commentary, anything, documentary, ten years after, whatever. And I, but I want him to do it because I want him to fix the closing credits. I say, lecturing John Hughes about <laughs> filmmaking, because I want this song over the closing credits and not whatever that <laughs> thing is that comes after it. Just. Uh, just rip the DVD to your hard drive and then just replace the audio. I should. And I then should just rip the DVD. Yeah. The Rick Emerson recut. Yeah. There you go. Uh, so, but I mean, this song, everyone, I mean, who's going to argue against this? Really here's the, the thing list? about this song. Yeah. And then I will make the most, uh, I, I I will make the biggest leap uh, for an analogy that you're going to hear this week from me. So like here's the thing about it. size leap, right? This, yes, but this song is that Simple Minds didn't like, you know, they didn't write it, and they didn't like this song when it was brought to them. Yeah. They said, no, it's crap. We don't like the song. and we, we write all our own stuff. We don't really care, but we don't want to do this. And I think their manager, their record label, or somebody was like, no, 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 it's a hit. This movie's going to be a hit. You've got to record this song or you're going you're gonna to regret it. And so Simple Minds recorded this song sort of grudgingly, kind yeah. of under protest. And 
when this song came out, a lot of Simple Minds fans didn't like it because, again, they didn't write it. An outside songwriter. They did it reluctantly. And so it was sort of looked at a little askance. Yeah, redhead stepchild, basically. Exactly. Yeah. So in the movie Leap of Faith, which is one of my favorite films of all time, uh, spoiler, they're all in, they're all in Iowa. And, you know, there's this Jonas Nightingale, Steve Martin, is this sort of shyster evangelist. And he's there fleecing the town. And everybody in the town keeps wondering when it's going to rain, because otherwise the crops are going to die and the town will go bankrupt. And he's just this sort of huckster, you know, scams everybody out of their cash. But by the end of the movie, there are so many people who believe in him, despite the fact that he's uh, a flim-flam artist, that they make it rain. It's like the assembled belief of the people causes it to rain. So it is with this song, that even though this song was sort of viewed through skeptical eyes by a lot of people, um, the affection and love for this movie has imbued this song with a sense of legitimacy and a sort of halo that it would not otherwise ever have had. You're right. That was a leap, man. There you go. That was Scott Bakula right there. Any excuse to bring up Jonas Nightingale? <laughs> no, but I, I see where you're going. That's definitely. I mean, because I, mean, I don't think there's anybody who hears this song and doesn't automatically think Breakfast Club. I would say that, for me, this may be the song that is the most... Uh, intertwined with a film. You can't... They're, they're inseparable. Yeah. In anyway, inseparable. They're a word like that. <laughs> uh, Bobby Roberts, top five uh, closing credit songs. Number four, My Way by Sid Vicious from the end of Goodfellas. Totally. Right here, Joe Pesci is shooting you, the audience member. Got that pistol out, and you've got this punk cover. I get to live the rest of my life as a schnook. <laughs> or a spaghetti that gave me egg noodles with ketchup on it. I'm a schnook, I'm a schmo. And out of nowhere, Pesci pops up and shoots you like five times. Which is a great little callback, too, because that's from that the earliest thing ever put on film, which is that cowboy shooting the camera. Yeah, and people freaked out. Totally. People were ducking in their chairs. Wasn't it the first film? Wasn't it just basically like a train coming into the station? Yeah. And people started diving out of the way. They thought the train was going to come plowing through the theater and knock them over. And this cover is just, it's not like the best cover ever, but I sort of like how this ends Goodfellas. What year did this song come out? Do we know? Almost like 76, maybe? It must have been, because Vicious died. 76, 77? Yeah. And so in 76, 77, I think it's hard to remember now how, I mean, I wasn't around, but I mean, I think it's hard to realize now how, A, how notorious the Sex Pistols were. Yeah. I mean, they were like, going to wreck society. Mm -hmm. And B... In 1976, it took some guts to do this to a Frank Sinatra song. Yeah. Because Sinatra was still, like, king of the world in and many Sinatra ways. Sinatra still had people who knew people. Oh, yeah. Sinatra still was connected at that point. These British could... gutter punks are out there trashing my work. Sap them in the neck. Well, you know that when you, when Woody Allen, uh, when Woody Allen's uh, affair with Sunni Previn was yeah. revealed, Frank Sinatra called me a pharaoh because <laughs> they had been together. Frank Sinatra called me a pharaoh, and she's like, he's like, I'll have him taken care of. You just give me the word. I will have Woody Allen handled. See, now I'm imagining, like, Joe Piscopo rolling up in a Yugo or something and getting that with brass knuckles on. <laughs> Uncle the, Frank told me I should do this. And Woody Allen goes, I, I don't know. I'm just trying to, the, 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 I mean, the heart one, wants what it wants. I just, uh, I don't. Uh... You get to date your adopted daughter once. Once. And it pop right to the fist. Bad Boy Roberts counted out the top five rock songs that accompany the closing credits of a film. All right, number three, exit music for a film by Radiohead from Romeo and Juliet. This was written specifically... For the film, um, I think it's the only time Radiohead's ever actually written anything just for a movie. And if you listen, it does sort of tell the uh, the tale of Romeo and Juliet from Romeo's point of view, albeit in a bitter, half open eyed way. We've <laughs> 
Because the lead singer weird Radiohead is a like, fashion. Yeah, he looks sort of like like if Gollum got high on acid or something. That's how that guy looks. He looks like somebody jammed a marble into one of his eye sockets. <laughs> That's really what he looks like. There's no getting around it. But he they looks make, like a normal guy, but his face got like melted and went all slanty. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Mary Jo Buttafuoco ish. Yeah, but everything is just sort of at a weird angle with that guy. Lips, nose, mouth. They're all like this weird, like. Mm-hmm. This like weird 45 degree. But angle. on the other hand, you can't imagine someone normal looking making the music that Radiohead no. makes, writing these songs. They're all they're all sort of hauntingly beautiful in their way, except for when they got into that uh, period where it was just turn on the sampler and then run right. it through a blender and then fart on top of it, and then there you go. That's uh, Kid A. Essentially, that's the entirety of the album. But this one is pretty much the retelling of uh, Romeo and Juliet as viewed by a like an angry 15-year-old. So we were, uh, this weekend we were at uh, your house, we were all doing the West Side Story commentary, which then became a discussion of Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, which then became a discussion of Moulin Rouge, Mm -hmm. because Aaron's wife, Jen, doesn't like Moulin Rouge. And I got to tell you, it's, yeah, some girls there, but it's also a bunch of guys. A bunch of guys sitting around on a sofa drinking beer. And yet when Jen said, I don't like Moulin Rouge, it's a bunch of guys going, come on! And it's like, not like Moulin Rouge. It's like big, like these like you know, kind of scruffy guys all going like, come on, Moulin Rouge is a modern masterpiece. I actually busted out singing Come What May. Just yeah. in response, I just started singing songs from the movie at her to see if that would sway her. So I don't even know... I think the problem with Moulin Rouge is if you can't make it past the first 15 minutes, you're not oh, going to no. make it. And, and it's a rough 15 minutes because he's hitting you with everything yeah. stylistically, and there's no way to duck out from under. I mean, he's got can-can girls and dudes in top hats singing Nirvana medleys, right. and it doesn't work. Right. Nirvana does not work with underneath it. It just doesn't. We had this discussion last week, actually, but it's all about he actually says on the commentary to Moulin Rouge, he says... This in the beginning, he said, "You've got to make a contract with the audience in the very beginning, mm-hmm. where you tell them this is the kind of film it's going to be. Are you in or out?" Yeah. And with Moulin Rouge, it's like you watch the first 15 minutes. If you don't like that, you're yeah. not going to like anything well, else he does. And that's I, it. I still don't like the first 15 minutes, but I really love that movie, it's and specifically for the uh, the Tango de Roxanne. It's, uh, it's that was just, like some of the best editing I've ever seen in a film ever. Period. Moulin Rouge seems like a movie that should not have worked. No, I mean, should Well, you got you and McGregor singing kiss lyrics yeah. to somebody, you know. <laughs> so, top five songs that accompany the closing credits of a film. Number two, number two, Ghostbusters oh, by yeah. Ray Parker Jr. I mean, come on. Although, didn't he get sued for this? Yeah, the story. He got sued for this by Huey Lewis. We right? had a guy. Uh, we had a guy on a couple weeks ago, mu- uh, musicology. You know, we know we're like a, a music major yeah. who has a whole book about this and uh, about how they asked Huey Lewis to write. A song, and they said, "We love that. I want a new drug. Can we? You do something like that?" And he's like, "No, man, I'm busy." <laughs> and so they brought in Huey Lewis doing those Huey Lewis type things. They brought in Ray Parker Jr. and they're like, "Look, so this is the song we wanted, and he wouldn't write one. Can you do something like this?" And yeah, Huey Lewis six months later driving around the car, and he hears this, and he's like, oh, "Wait a minute." And so now he got a huge chunk of cash, and if you look at the credits, he is credited as the co-author of the well, song. I mean, it's it's pretty blatant once you point it oh, out. Yeah. I mean, sure, you throw Ghostbusters over the top of it, but this is probably this is this is where Ray song. Parker comes in. I like the bridge right This there. right here? Oh, this is fantastic. Oh, yeah. Because this is when you hear that Larry King talking about Ghostbusters and ghost busting. Yeah. The, the montage of all the newspapers totally. flying by and Casey Kasem dedicating songs. Yeah, I forgot about that. Oh, yeah. Speaking of which, plug, 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 this Friday, Baghdad Theater, the Court of Fatboy Midnight movie is Ghostbusters. So if you want to come out and hang out with us, $3 gets you in. This Friday at the Baghdad Theater, 
Ghostbusters. On the big screen for the first time in God knows how long. 24 years? This is an underrated, yes. And this is an underrated soundtrack, too, because it's got that magic song. Oh, I know. That song is creepy as hell. And it's got Cleaning Up the Town, Oh yeah, is another great song. And that's in the little medley where they're doing the uh, out cleaning up all the ghosts. Uh Uh-huh. All right. Counting on the top five pop songs or rock songs that accompany the closing credits of a film. What is number one? Number one is Where Is My Mind by the Pixies from Fight Club. Okay, I didn't see this coming. This is my number one. This sums up the movie perfectly. Right here, you just saw someone's penis. Not, if you, if, if not you, in the studio. No, if, you, if you're familiar with the movie, that's, that's what just happened. Put that away. There it goes. But no, this is this is the this is the uh, this is the number one for me. This sums up uh, Fight Club perfectly. All I right. mean, the buildings are falling, things are exploding, and it's this guy who just shot his own face off, holding hands with this really weird, right. beautiful freak. And then they do this the frame. Yep. And there it yeah. goes. Penis. All right. So I can see that. What did you think was coming? What did, what did, I don't know. I was I was sort of a, I I didn't know what to expect. I guess uh, See, I, I would have picked Purple Rain, but Baby I'm a Star is the closing credit to that, and I don't yeah. like that song so much. I was telling Bobby my favorite one that I could think of was uh, from The Devil's Advocate. Uh, what is it with? It's Peanut Black. Oh, really? It's so perfect. It just, like, is it the Stones version? Such, yeah, it's the Stones version. Yeah. And it's perfect because that ends on such a dark note, and then all of a sudden you hear this wicked song. Say it. What? Say it. I'm a fan of man. There you go. He's an absentee landlord. That's what I'm talking about. Worship that never. Call me dad. Okay. God, One step unnerving. too many. By the way, I'm saying for me, I have so many names. Closing, closing credits, closing credits to a film, uh, the, a song that accompanies them. I'm saying for me, it yeah. might almost be, it might almost be, We Three at the end of Chasing Amy. Ooh, by Soul Asylum. That's pretty cool. Which is a song that existed. That's off their album, uh, the horse they rode in on. Yeah, it existed way before Chasing Amy. But it is a song about. I mean, it mirrors the, the storyline of Chasing Amy. Not exactly, but very closely. And it's about a guy whose best friend is dating a girl, and he doesn't get along with the girl. And it's about how the girl is coming between he and his best friend, which very much parallels Chasing Amy. And, and it has and it has that great piano opening, and it has that, you know, yeah. that I was tapping my foot on a Friday night. You know, it's just a beautiful song. The Soul Asylum should donate just like a quarter of their proceedings to Kevin Smith. Because totally. Kevin Smith is like the only person I know who knows how to use their music correctly. I almost put on this list from Clerks 2, which is a movie that has sort misery. of diminished in time. Yeah, Misery. Yeah. Because that, that fits that movie perfectly. Yeah. 2AT. I didn't really care for the movie, but that closing sequence made it all worthwhile. Yeah. That You know what? Here's the thing. Clerk, and then we have to break out of this. Uh, Clerks 2, to me, is like Revenge of the Sith, mm-hmm. where, in retrospect, not as good as I thought it was at the time, but even though it's shameless and pandering, it's all worth it for the final sequence in Sith. When yeah. you see, you know, when you see Owen holding Luke, yeah. just as in the final sequence of Clerks 2 when it fades to black and white and they're back in the store. It's all worth it for that. You know how happy jumping up and down Kevin Smith would be to hear you compare Clerks 2 to Revenge of the Smith? There you go. Revenge of the Smith. How that? Hey! Pun. I'm punny. Uh, <laughs> Quality comedy. Bobby Fatboy Roberts, Rock 101 KUFO, 7 to Midnight. Back, at, back after this. The greatest! <laughs> and you got your head! Deafening thousands with a wave of our hand. It's the Rick Emerson Radio Program. It's 503-733-2970. Don't forget, this coming Thursday, we'll be carrying the vice presidential debate live. Jim Roop from CNN Radio doing the wraparound, as they say. And then running commentary by news director Tim Riley, Portland icon Storm Large, uh, and myself. That's coming up this Friday at 6 p.m. 
And uh, that will be streamed live, I believe. i got to double-check that, but I think it will be streamed live if we're asking that question. It's 503-733-2970 uh, and whatnot. All right, let's see. we got the eye here on the Rick Emerson Show. How might I help you today? Uh, now it's laying me down to sleep, boss. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry? sorry? Is, that, is that in poor taste? I said, now, now it lay me down to sleep, boss. Are you making a cool hand Luke joke about the death of Paul Newman? Get a drink of water here, boss. I might be. Um, but let me get at what I wanted to say first. Uh-huh. Uh, so this morning, uh, I'm at work early in the morning. Got some toast with some apple butter on it. Walk over to take a bite of it, and I notice uh, a bunch of fruit flies buzzing around it, so I go to, go to wave them away. And one of them seems uh, unnecessarily fat and is uh, moving extremely slowly. Mm-hmm. And I take a closer look, and it uh, turns out that there were two fruit flies uh, fornicating on my toast. That's the worst phrase uh, I've ever heard. Tim Riley is wrinkling his nose in disgust. Wait. I finished the toast. Thank you. And good day to you. Best show ever. Hang up. <laughs> Go away now. Thank you. I do like apple butter. By the way. Why I'm does gonna... that story have to be told? I know. Like, I wish I could hear that. Why does anything on this show really have to be done, Tim? I don't know. I mean. And it's like, what's so wrong with us where people think that they can call in and think that we appreciate that story? <laughs> You're asking. Would you tell that story to your mother? You're asking, what have we ever done that would make people think that that was the story we wanted to hear? And now, now, from the Ministry of Truth, this is Tim Riley. Yes, it is. Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson very disappointed by the failure of the U.S. House to approve a massive bailout of couple financial institutions. Our toolkit is substantial but insufficient. Therefore, I will continue to work with congressional leaders to find a way forward to pass a comprehensive plan to stabilize our financial system and protect the American people. Who is he speaking to right there? I don't mean literally at that place. I mean, who is that supposed to be directed at? Is the American people. At us? Yes. All right. I don't think it really works if you get on television and you say our toolkit is substantial but insufficient. What does that mean? That doesn't mean anything. So if you're really trying to make the point... Don't you feel like, because you were making the uh, the case earlier to me, you, you do believe that if we are going to be res- uh, rescued for, or at least saved from financial ruin, that this has got to be done to some degree. So right. if he's really that serious about it, and I know this sounds like a flip thing, why doesn't he just get on television and go, look, do this, or you are going to be effed like you have never been effed before by the economy. Uh, I believe if Cheney did it, maybe people believe it. Yeah, look, I want to tell you right now, um, you're going to be effed, and it's uh, and it's not going to be pleasant, and uh, you're going to uh, feel a deep stabbing pain uh, thrusting into your pocketbook, and you're going to find it very unpleasant. So I'm going to need $150 billion right now. Go after yourself. Uh, it, it seems like he's just continually understating the case. He's soft-soaping it. And so it's not like I'm trying to make things worse than they are, but I get the feeling I don't need to make things worse than they are. Things are worse than they are. I mean, right? I mean, things are worse than they're telling us. If you're saying, if you're still using phrases like, well, we've got a lot in our toolbox, if we need to do this so we don't all end up homeless and you know, taken over by the Chinese, just tell us. Just say that. So, I think we may have already been taken over by the Chinese. That's entirely possible. This guy says, Rick, Susie Armand should call up the Fed chairman live on TV and verbally beat his ass, demanding to know yeah. how this could have happened. And somebody else is saying that they do believe Alan Greenspan was largely to blame for this, and he got out while the getting was good. More than likely. 
So, really, I want to... And it's out of this guy, uh, Paulson. I mean, he, he made hundreds of millions of dollars. And here he is lecturing people? Don't you think Please. that... So, well, it's like we were saying last week that we think... Um, yeah, you know, we think it's strange that somebody has not published the physical addresses of all of the jackasses that let this happen, just so somebody could, you know, theoretically go have a good civil conversation with them. Don't you think Susie Orman ought to do some Michael Moore thing right now, where she gets a camera and she just starts, she goes looking, you know, she goes looking, she goes to Paulson's office and let me in, it's Susie Orman, just so she can give them a good strong talking to about this. Jesus. All right, here's Tim Riley. And to make matters worse, the Dow Jones nearly 778-point drop. That 778-point drop is the worst single-day point loss ever. So why haven't they suspended trading, is my question. Well, because the American way is it's, it's part of the machinery of business. But they suspend trading when other stuff happens. Didn't they suspend trading on 9-11? Yes. Okay, well, this is, look, I hate to be this guy, but in terms of the stock market, oh, like very, Roosevelt thing. let's be very clear about this. In terms of the effect on the economy yes. and the stock market, from what I have seen, and again, I I, I don't know, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, whatever from Shinola, from what I have seen, this has had a worse effect on the economy and the stock market than 9/11 did, and they suspended trading on 9/11 because they didn't want everything to go belly up or further belly up, and yet they're letting trade continue now when all it seems to be doing is just putting everybody further in a hole. So I don't know why that they're, I don't know why they're continuing to let everybody do it. It just seems like nothing good is coming from that. How about this one? This guy says, Rick, news outlets keep referring to the $700 billion bailout as the largest Wall Street bailout since the Great Depression. He said the total, he said, um, the total U.S. federal government budget adjusted for inflation uh, for the Great Depression was 40 to 140 billion, less than the current bailout. He said, if you adjust for inflation, this is in fact the largest bailout in not only U.S. history, but world history. So that's a thing nobody's saying, probably because they don't want to make everybody run into the streets with shovels and handguns. All right, here's Tim Riley. A wiry man is accused of trying to bury 1,200 pounds of stolen silver in an Oregon national forest. 43-year-old Dakota Yarbrough and his wife Connie are charged with allegedly stealing $2 million in gold, silver, and jewelry and coins from his former stepmother in Bend. Police arrested Dakota with the silver in his rented car. They say he was planning to bury it in National Forest west of Bend. He's charged with burglary. Aggravated that possession of a machine gun and silencer. His bail over $500,000. Now, this Dakota fellow's name is spelled D-A-K-O-T-A-H. That's not really how you spell that, I think. Well, I think his parents may have been smoking dope or something when they named him and spelled that out. Smoking the marijuana. Thing. That's what I was thinking. Right. Oh, by the way, we're going to be talking to a, uh, from PSU, we're going to be talking to a professor of economics... Uh, who teaches at PSU uh, tomorrow, and he will be answering some of these questions uh, in a in a simplistic fashion. Okay, so here's a question, because we only have a couple of days to talk about this before it happens. Mm-hmm. So, well, first of all, I mean, assuming that Sarah Palin doesn't find some way to get out of Thursday's debate, I mean, and at this point, you got to wonder if it would even matter if she did. You know, like if she bailed on Thursday's debate, don't you figure, if you are still firmly in the supporting Sarah Palin camp by this point, there's probably nothing she could do to alienate you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, if, if you're still firmly behind her, what could she possibly do? What mistake could she make? What misstep could she engage in that would alienate her constituents at this point? I'm going to a ribbon-cutting ceremony for a bridge to nowhere. I mean, that's the thing, right? So you almost have to wonder if it's if it's worth it to her to just find some reason to skip the debate on Thursday. Because it's not like the presidential debate where, like, one time it's uh, foreign policy and the next time it's, like, domestic policy and then, you know, whatever. I mean, they're going to try to wrap everything into that one 90 minutes with her, which means it's got to be 
endless questions about the economy, mm-hmm. which is really not. And she's not going to be able to use that. I can see Russia from my porch uh, thing. This there, she's going to actually have to answer some questions. You've got to stop putting that out in, into the universe that she might not show up for the debate. Well, I almost. I don't know, that, but I, I almost even... want that to happen, right? Because I want to see what what the Obama Biden people would do. Hmm. I mean, I don't want, how could you want that to happen at all? I want to see her up there because, well, I, well, I just don't know. What would you find more satisfying right now to see her? What would you look okay, let me ask you? This. Don't you want to know if she's like some super intelligent person or the dumbest person on earth? I mean, because that would that will be answered on Thursday if she shows up. I don't know. I will have to say this. What if they find a devil? And what if there's a what if there's a what if they find a a, a voodoo practitioner is putting a spell on her? Mm-hmm. Well, here's an interesting thing. I will say this. I went back and I watched that interview she did with Katie Couric, which was just, uh, again, to whatever degree you can feel sympathy for Sarah Palin. It, what was fascinating was, even though she's been given a foolish answer, there's nothing going on in, in Katie Couric's head at all. <laughs> Except for the blank stare. <laughs> I mean, it's like the blank meeting the blank. Go back and watch a video. It's on my way. And if you look at Katie Couric's expression, like, there's nothing. The wheels are not turning up here. <laughs> are they going to hold my reservations at the... At this bars at the night. Gonna, is it, will Spago still have my table? Uh, what so, did I do with my oil of Olay? <laughs> it's, it is. They do have a little bit of a uh, mutual echo chamber going on there. I'll give you that. But watching that interview with Katie Couric, where Sarah Palin was so, and you, I think, were talking about this before the show, where they, Katie Couric asked her some question, and it was like, what are we going to do about this uh, stupid economy that's going bust? So she spilled out the answers on all the cards she had to memorize in the first question. There's every set of talking points they gave her, where she was like... But they're eh. out of order. It's like the cards fell on the floor, and she picked them up again and fed them back into her brain, but they weren't in the right order. <laughs> she just spat it all out. And it was, you know, and it was all a bailout, economy, jobs, health care, religion, uh, gods, gun, government, butter, uh, choice in schools, voucher, Russia, my back porch, hello! And just spitting out every single talking point they'd given her to that one answer. And so it was just awkward and excruciating to watch, because you realize... This woman is exceedingly stupid. Or it, it reminded me of that that uh, beauty pageant contestant. Oh, Miss South Carolina. Well, this is an older beauty pageant contestant who is now middle aged. That is true. That woman. She goes. Uh, it's she about has the same brain as back then. It's with the Iraq and the so forth. Let me see if I have that actually before we uh, before we go. Let me see if I, yeah, I have I mean, that. She's made uh, you know lipstick, eyelashes, and sawdust. That's about it. <laughs> and then I have one more observation to make before we. Uh, before we break this up, let's see. Do I have that Miss South Carolina? What would I have filed that under? South? Miss? Uh, no, sadly. It's really the same thing. Under the Iraq? No, I don't think I have it. I will say this one thing, though. Watching Sarah Palin on Katie Couric and then reading the transcript, it reads much worse than it looks when you read the transcript of that answer. When, when, it, when Katie Couric said... Like, I think she said, what are three specific things you're going to do to fix the stupid economy? And if you read Sarah Palin's answer, there's just nothing there. I mean, she is just, that is a house in which no one has ever lived, that brain of hers. I mean, that is just one big, that is a Potemkin brain she's got. But then when you watch her saying the answer to Katie Couric, it comes across much better because she's saying nothing, but she does say it pretty convincingly. I mean, she does have a kind of a forceful delivery. But there, there, there is nothing in Katie Couric's expression that there's anything going on wrong here because 
her answers are not penetrating Katie Couric's brain. <laughs> they're only like reaching halfway across the room, and they're not really making it all the way for Sarah's, her to respond to them. It's like Katie Couric's brain is a thick candy shell around it that repels all of Sarah Palin's answers. It's only like two bars instead of four. Yeah. So, uh, so do we think the debate's going to happen this Thursday? Yes, it has to. Sarah? Yes. What's more American? Ah, oh, man. Can you imagine final thought? With the state of the economy and with like McCain already pulling that not going to do it and then doing it thing, like she can't bail out. Final thought here. Can you imagine, though, if Sarah Palin somehow goes in and is a genius and just kills O'Biden in this debate? Uh, O'Biden. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's the great taste of O'Biden in the morning. Uh, can you imagine if she goes in, though, and just, just reams him in this debate? I mean, that that right, I'm telling you right now, if Sarah Palin has been, like, rope-a-doping this whole time, if she's been sandbagging and she just cleans house in that debate, it's over. It's over. McCain, it, oh, it'll God, be McCain. I don't, I don't talking... think there's enough time to teach her that. No, I'm, but I'm saying... You can't teach her to grow a brain in three days. Well, but here's the thing. Do you remember this, though? Do you remember the difference between how she looked in those news clips after he announced her candidacy? When she's like, I'm a hockey mom from Alaska. And then seeing her at the convention and being astonished by how good she was? But she also had all of the, like, she had her entire speech prepared for her. This is going to be on the fly. I'm just saying. I'm saying this. That if she loses this Thursday, it may not be fatal. But if she wins this Thursday, it's over. McCain wins. I'm telling you right now. She has the potential to sew it all up on Thursday. We'll be covering it live. Back after this. Don't go anywhere. No, they're all the same. We now enter the saddest part of the broadcasting day, the final segment of the Rick Emerson radio program. Join us tomorrow, and our guests will include Nina Parker from TMZ.com and some guy from PSU who will attempt to explain economics to us in the simplest possible terms. By the way, remember how uh, uh, Tim Riley and Scotty Jay used to discuss real estate in the kitchen? The new that is Kristen Bowie and Richie Bristol discussing the stock market in the kitchen. Um, Richie, I, I, I heard him giving her examples of stocks, and I'm like, I just need to walk by this conversation. Yeah, she had this look of patient indulgence on her face, though, as though he's talking out of his ass. Hi, you're on the Rick Emerson Show. Probably the final call of the day. How can I help you, sir? Yeah, Rick, I saw Sir uh, Palin's last debate on the YouTube for the commentorial debate. Oh, really? And? Yeah, you can, and then you can't find it because they take it off, and then someone else will post it. Right. But she does a really good job of doing what Danny Kincannon says from the West Wing. She answers a question, just not the one he asked. Exactly, exactly. I mean, that is, you know, and that's the thing. Don't when they when you are in that position of being the debater, the thing is never let them never let them get you off of message. No matter what they ask you, you answer the question you wish you had been asked, which right. is a thing everybody does. And I got to say, there was such a ramp up from our expectations of her to the convention. I I am not willing to write her off for this Thursday, so it remains to be seen, my friend. Well, and I see I say that she'll be just saying five points over and over again. Yeah, he'll just talk himself into trouble. I'm with you, uh, Danny Kincannon for the win. Thank you. Uh, when have I seen a radio correspondence? Dick Giuliano, Jim Roop, and Steve Kastenbaum. Uh, we have anybody else on today? All right, then. Uh, oh, and Chris Neathen from OnTheVig.com. Rick Emerson Show produced today and every day with the lovely and talented Sarah Stillen for AM 970, the talker in the newsroom, Tim Riley, and the phone to Richie Bristol. The gatekeeper, Dave Zinn. Webmistress Bridget from upstairs. Director of Engineering, Brian Jones. CBS Radio Portland Marketing Guru, Susan Donak with me. Reynolds, like us next. Michael O'Mara Show at 7. See you at 10 for the recap tomorrow, 11 for the show. And uh, bye now. Watch out for snakes. Bye. Things can get my mind right, not with no stick, no sir.